And we're back. This is the main course on the Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting to you live from 261 Moore Street, Roberta's Pizza. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host. I'm the other one, Patrick yeah, Martins. That would be Patrick Martins over there. Uh, we have a fantastic show lined up today for you. Um, we're really excited to bring Barbara Fairchild, the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, onto the show for the first time. I hope it'll be the first of many oh, visits. That's awesome. Yeah, totally awesome. We're 1. just like... 1.3 million readers. Six. One point six, 6 <laughs> yeah. million readers. As I, long as you give me free pizza after this is over, I'll come every week. Oh, when I'm in New York. Man. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, be careful what you wish for, Barbara. <laughs> we also are going to have, um, uh, you know, after in the second hour, we're going to talk to Nick Fantasma, who you know is very interesting. I mean, we um, son of Mick Fantasma, he of the Johnny Cash like voice, who no, was on a son, couple, exactly a couple of weeks ago uh, with the Dairy Show. And, you know, we're big believers, uh, you know, since we have um, a lot of people going to be listening because we have Barbara on, we wanted to bring attention to some of our key issues, which is, you know, slaughter, because, you know, center of the plate always seems to be an issue a little bit that gets avoided. People are happy to talk about fruits and vegetables and all these things. But when it comes to beef, pork, duck, chicken, like all of a sudden, you know. uh, Well, because nobody wants to think that there's actually any killing involved. (laughs) Well, then also, you know, I think people still want to think it just comes on that nice little styrofoam tray. And, and I hear all these people attacking foie gras producers. I'm like, are you at the Purdue plant? That's yeah, really. What you should be fighting. So anyway, center of the plate is a big issue. And so we're going to have Nick Fantasma uh, on to talk a little bit about, you know, advice for new slaughterhouses. And actually, funnily enough, the Times had an editorial by their all their editors in the uh, opinion section, not the op-ed section, in the Times opinion section about we need more slaughterhouses, and you wrote a great response, Katie. Well, uh, you know, I've been following the, uh, as you know, I'm I'm the meat geek. <laughs> the resident you are meat a former geek. butcher. I am a former butcher, and I am really interested in the meat business, and I, I do follow what's going on, so, um, and and last February, as everybody who's listened before knows, I, I attended the USDA conference on sustainable agriculture down in D.C. And um, the you know the thing that we heard over and over again, in which I quoted in uh, in in this uh, response that I wrote to the op- to the opinion piece, is that there are no regional or not not a sufficient quantity of regional processing facilities or regional distribution networks, mm-hmm. and this is what is holding back the local regional uh, movement of agriculture more than really anything else. Everybody's willing to grow the stuff. They're all willing to have it. They want to sell it. Half the time they grow it before they even have a sales outlet or a Exactly. And I'm a big believer, no offense to the government, because I love Obama and all that, but screw the government. Screw, you know, almost investors, you know, because they're not investing in it. All these people, Well, that was my question. It's like, where are the venture capitalists? I'll tell you. Put some money into they're this. They're the chefs. They're Mario Batali. Daniel Ballou, they're the people that care. They're into it. Yeah. Mario Batali, Dan and now, Barber, yeah. They they've they launched our slaughterhouse. I mean, without Mario Batali's restaurant group, we wouldn't exist. Wow. And our slaughterhouse, which by the way just got a three million dollar loan from the bank to expand production and everything, total you know belief in in a good thing. But that came from Mario Batali. It didn't come from some legislator that's never killed an animal before. Well, I I don't. I mean, uh, as I pointed out in this opinion, um, when I was at this conference and I I asked uh, the deputy secretary Kathleen Merrigan, um, what were if any <laughs> were there any plans for the government to help you know states like New York or Pennsylvania invest in these kinds of facilities for processing either animals or even processing mm-hmm. vegetables and fruits 
you know, did they have any plans in the works? Were they, you know, putting any money aside for this? Absolutely no response. She could not answer the question and, in fact, basically ducked it. Well, read us a, a piece for your update because I want to now tie this into, you know, this Sullivan County Cheese Project again, how entrepreneurship is the answer and how that's the only group entity out there that actually makes change. But read us uh, well, I mean, the I, best part. Okay, <laughs> the best part. That's the whole thing. It's brilliant. I'm reading it over. And I'm like, God, I'm so smart. <laughs> Tell us. Um, Well, I think the main point is, and this is what I said in the thing, is that you and I so often interview people from the agricultural community, Mm -hmm. and the the message is always the same, that regional agriculture is stymied by the paucity of processing facilities and adequate distribution. And the point to be made there is that farmers cannot afford to add the infrastructure to their farms. Their margins are so small already and it's so easy to knock them off course financially that, you know, it's just, and it's not realistic to expect them to do that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying this because Barbara's here. I've, I mean, I've said this a hundred times on the station. I think the press now needs to pay attention to groups of farmers working together, not the farmstead miracle. I love Joel Salatin. Yeah. To continually use him as a model is not helping the majority of the no, bell it's not. curve, which and it's, they just want to sell their stuff and remain farmers. Right. And, well, I mean, we've talked about the fact that there's just too many people. I mean, nothing, you know, the, the sort of, <laughs> the, the small-scale farm, lovely as it is, and as much as we all want to support it, is not going to feed our population, nor is it going to provide the volume of export, which is what uh, makes Drives. up, as, as I learned recently at this conference, which makes up about 30% of our gross domestic product that wow. we ship overseas. So, and that is why, I mean, I think people really need to understand that that is why uh, there is so much resistance, uh, both on the part of the agricultural community who are involved in big ag and also on the part of the government and the USDA in changing the model. This is a huge part of our national economy and a huge part of mm-hmm. what, you know, drives sort of the country the country yeah Yeah. so it it can't just be you know vilified as those are the bad guys and we're the good guys it's 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 villasac oh vilified sorry (laughs) tell me what uh give us uh, some original writing here katie some of the poetry oh we should say we're by the way sponsored by hearst ranch and i will read actually their poetry and read your i love their poetry too um, anyway, one of the things that I brought up is that we, since we already subsidize commodity farms through our taxpayer money mm-hmm. in the form of our farm bill, right. um, why are we not moving some of that money from mega ag, like the you know big guys like Monsanto, et cetera, into smaller regional agricultural communities? Mm-hmm. Like maybe throwing in some... Uh, here's another big problem, which we'll discuss with Nick Fantasma. And Barbara. And, for, and with Barbara about the HACCP rules, which are the, the rules that protect our oh. slaughterhouses and protect the population uh, from pathogens and these are you know in in the case of big slaughterhouses these rules are are very stringent and need to be in the case of small regional farms uh, it's it's sometimes presents an, a burden an economic burden for them that they simply cannot it, it becomes no longer possible for them to actually process meats because it's too expensive to put into place some of the infrastructure that the big companies are able to do easily although to be you know fair to that issue Tell and us. play devil's advocate they those little slaughterhouses were also against i remember when i was at uh, slow food in italy when hasip started to become a word those farmers were against it then mm-hmm. and they realized they had to play ball if they were so carlo petrini was originally against hasip but then he was like listen if the big guys are going to do it we have to do it too and so i think that maybe we have to find Listen, if the big guys are going to have HACCP plans for every individual product, the little guys either have to do one product 
or they have to play ball too. I don't know how, but we can't have Smithfield claiming safety yeah. because they do this process and the little guy gets pegged as someone who's not safe because he doesn't like you know yeah but in the it, you know i mean if HACCP rules include doing things like uh steaming the carcasses or washing them with chlorine which is a common practice in processing meats mm-hmm. on the mega you know on the large scale um it's not re- not only do small farms not need that because they don't they're not using that many birds they don't have the same problems <laughs> Um, but it's also incredibly expensive for a small mm-hmm. farmer to, or a small processing house to manage that. So anyway, right. so we go there. We go to the right, HACCP rules. HACCP, by the way, is H-A-A-C-P. Okay. And the last and best part <laughs> is, <laughs> in my deathless prose here, but the best part, I think, is that there is money to be made in developing, processing, and distribution on a private level. Yeah. And where are the venture capitalists? Where are they? What a great end to that piece. I mean, you know, there's so much, you could do so much good with relatively small investment. I mean, it's not a lot of money to build a processing facility for fruits and vegetables. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't have it, but, you know, somebody who's really dealing in the real world... <laughs> So <laughs> probably does. Before we cut to our uh, before we cut to our um, sponsor and uh, bring on um, Barbara, last thing, same idea. Anne and I visited, and I'll say this in under sixty seconds. Anne and I visited Sullivan County. We visited six dairy farmers. They ranged from angry to just to defeated. <laughs> and Anne and I were there talking to these people, and and we were looking for a creamery. We said. How much milk, how much cheese could all 20, the last 25 dairy farmers in Sullivan County produce? The answer to that is 7,000 pounds a week. 7,000 pounds a week of cheese is not that much to make. That would pay the farmers $25 per hundredweight, which is 25 cents a gallon instead of the current 17 cents a gallon. I met Michael Hurwitz at the Hester Street Market. He's like, put green market down for a couple thousand of pounds. A some, week. A week. So yeah, I'm sure. like, there's 2,000. They've and got many, shop many facilities for selling it. And Fairway put another 2,000. So right there, half the cheese gone. I'm a big believer in the bodegas yeah. of New York City being a very powerful market for, listen to this, and this is, and then we'll, we'll, we'll cut to the Hearst thing. $25 a pound per hundred, uh, $25 per hundred weight yeah. creates an $8 cheese. That Anne is willing to oversee. So again, if anyone's listening, our call to Sullivan County is find us an existing creamery or give us the money to build one. Because every day that passes is another day. Another dairy farm goes under. And Anne is getting paid commodity. They're clo- they're an hour's drive from the richest, most densely populated city in history. And are getting paid commodity. The same yeah. as that guy in Iowa with 100,000 pounds. It pisses me off. And find us a creamery, and we will sell that cheese and pay those farmers more. So more than that, and plus the reputation of Saxoby Cheesemongers and Heritage Foods to say that we'll back up that claim, we want those farmers to cancel their commodity contracts and make that change. So, you know, that's a big, exciting call. And I hope, again, like you say, venture capitalists, It's a great someone, goal to work towards. Yeah, it doesn't cost that much to do a cheese. And, and for a really hundred years, that cheese will continue to be a staple of and New York And that cheese City. can go into schools, into the school systems. Eventually. And, and the other thing is it's not competing with the farmstead cheese makers. And right. that's been a concern. Um, those are going to be the domain of the cheese plate. 
we're talking about competing with the craft single. Yeah. That's what we want. A seven to eight dollar a pound cheese. We're not talking about elitist. We're talking about like you say in public school. So anyway. Okay, well, let me let me read the poetry of Hearst magazine of Hearst Ranch. We'll take a ten second break <laughs> and and have a and then Barbara and then we'll on. take and then Barbara will come on and we'll and we'll grill you, Barbara. Get ready. Okay, so the Hearst Ranch, which is our show sponsor for today, um, is the nation's largest single source supplier of free range, all natural, grass fed, and grass finished beef. Thank you for making that editorial change for me. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. And by the way, that's 155,000 acres of virgin grassland that has been preserved as part of the nation's heritage. So by that's the like 300 family. square miles or yeah, something. Yeah, it's enormous. Um, the result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. And do go to their website, www.hearstranch.com to learn more about the Hearst Ranch, their grass-finished beef program, and uh, how to order their beef. Absolutely. You can also order it through HeritageFoodsUSA.com. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. No, you should do that. HeritageFoodsUSA.com. No, anyway. Um, Well, let's take a 10-second break. Okay, so let's take a break break. and come back with Barbara Fairchild. And we're back. This is the main course with um, Patrick Martins, Katie Thanks for Keeper, remembering. host. <laughs> and we are really excited about having our wonderful guest today, Barbara Fairchild, who is the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine, mm-hmm. which is the main food magazine in the United States now. Thank One you. And has in the world. I'm after in the world, world domination. Well, you pretty much got... I mean, you guys <laughs> have always had the biggest circulation of any of the food mags. 1.6 million. Because you've always Correct. been over a million, and gourmet, saveur, food and wine have never topped a million. 1.3 for a long time, and now yeah. we're at 1.6. But there are others, uh, I will have to correct you from the fact-checking point of view, Oh, okay, go that ahead. are uh, looming in our category they're at the loom- same They're They're coming up the in your rearview mirror? Who? Uh, food Network Magazine and Rachel Ray. Oh wow. yeah, Food Network magazine. That's I that I like that magazine actually, but that's right. they'll Rachel probably Ray. they'll probably be over a million by the end of this year and Rachel Ray is already uh right at where we are. You're still on top, Barbara. Well, we're all three of us very different magazines. You're so totally different. Yeah. I think absolutely. there's, you know, something to be said for the marketplace which has expanded, you know, greatly over the mm-hmm. last 10 years. It certainly has. Now, let me ask you this, that was one of my questions is who do you see as your target demographic? Who do I see as our yeah, target? Well, you know, I'm very lucky because we have such a huge uh, reach and a very wide range of readership, not only in age and 
uh, economics, but also in the in the I, I suppose you could say uh, ability to cook department. So we mm-hmm. want to address uh, everyone from the novice to the person who maybe has been cooking for a while and entertaining at home and just wants to stay on top of their game. And maybe we can teach them something new every month, which is something else that we want to do. But right now, uh, I'm very concerned and very uh, enthusiastic about having bringing more of a younger readership to the magazine, not that we're not you know, we're about 42 years old median. I was, I so Patrick, it's not I that old, quote unquote. 40, yeah. But I, I go to a farmer's market in my neighborhood in LA. I, for those people listening who don't know that Bon Appetit is based in Los Angeles, editorial is there and, and our test kitchens. But I'm in New York once a month for about a week and a half uh, because we're a Conde Nast publication wow. and uh, I have to report to my big bosses here. So I truly am by coastal editor, which I think gives me uh, you know, a unique perspective on what's going on and everything. But I have a farmer's market in my neighborhood. And I have a very nice cheese shop and places that I go to for fish and, and uh, meats, etc. And I see all these young people walking around in their early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s. And I see them looking at everything. And I see them buying the things. And I think, I sure hope you're reading Bon Appetit because we can tell you how to use all this stuff in a really engaging and simple way that will bring you into our world, which I think is very important to keep bringing people into our world. Now, let me ask you, through the lens of the actual publication of any given issue, speak to the different demographics that you, I mean, how do you speak to young people? Like, is it a column? Is it through young recipes? Is it through using whole animals? Like, What's the infrastructure? Well, it's, I think of the what we try to do is stay on top of what's really going on in the food world, so that we can address a lot of what's going on and what people of all ages are interested in. And we do have two columns that speak specifically to the kinds of things that you all talk about here. One is called the Conscious Cook, and one is called Healthwise. They run every hmm. issue in the front of the magazine, and they address all the things that you're talking about here. We have a very easy column of cooking called Fast, Easy, Fresh that I hope we bring in a lot of people. We had a very successful and still have a very successful cookbook by that name as well that people are really uh, enthusiastic about and have embraced as a, as a, you know, it's a column that really we introduced not that long ago in, in the history. What's it called? It's called Fast, Easy, Fresh. And what Rachel Ray has, Fast, Cheap, and Easy? Is that right? Well, no, see, that's our that's our minutes. important word she here is fresh. Meals. Fresh, right. Fresh, fresh, fresh. It was very important to me to have that be part of the name of the column. This isn't about cooking, mm-hmm. you know, from a box or a freezer, but there, although there are some things in boxes and cans and freezers that you can use that are, you know, not a no-no. Well, theoretically, you have a pantry stocked. I you mean, do. You always obviously. want to have a pantry. I mean, you use pasta out of a box yeah, all the time, exactly. but the thing and rice, etc. But mm-hmm. I think what we want to do is address how cooking has changed so radically. So radically. You know how we shop for food. You know, it's yeah. all well and good. We have readers who need to follow a recipe, and we're obviously we test everything. And you know, I completely back up everything that we have in our magazine has been tested, and it's all tastes great, but. And you like to follow a recipe and you maybe plan your shopping list to make this certain recipe, but then you get to the farmer's market and you see this fantastic pile of peppers or you see great looking Mm -hmm. carrots or something and you buy it because it's so tempting and you bring that stuff home and you think, okay, now what do I do with it? And Mm. that's also what we address in the magazine. So definitely in the front of the magazine, we do a lot of uh, addressing of what's going on, the Q&A column where we bring people like 
like Patrick and and boutique butchers in Richmond, Virginia, and people who are the urban farmer who we have in the June issue, who's been you know in Madison, Wisconsin, forever mm. and ever and ever, Milwaukee, sorry, forever and ever, who's been you know bringing an urban garden farming to his community. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that I appeal, I think appeal to people of all ages, mm-hmm. but I think people in the 20s to early 30s age group might be surprised to find in a magazine with a history like Bon Appetit. So I'm very proud that we do this and we do, you know, engage in this kind of conversation to put it out in a positive way. I mean, the first 20 minutes of your program, I sat here thinking my head is going to explode. It's also depressing, but you know, we're coming to it from Well, we're also inspiring, yeah, you think know, because listen, I've started a 6 million dollar business that's a solution. I mean, exactly. you know, Katie is fighting. So I mean, the the backdrop is depressing, but we are the very look at this network. I mean, Katie is a big journalist. She comes in here every Sunday. No, oh, but sweet. published in the New York Times. I'm impressed. We're about <laughs> solutions. By the way, I should say we have a call in number for our viewers who are seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Um, Barbara, let's talk for a minute about. Um, you also have a new column called Sunday Night Suppers. Sunday, Sunday Suppers, Suppers. Yes. just and started what was in the, April the issue. when you generate a new column for the magazine? I, magazines are very sort of format driven. Yes. So when you put a new column in, that's kind of a major sea change. Shift. It is a yeah. shift. And what what inspired you to do Sunday Suppers specifically? And what do you hope to you know what do you hope to accomplish for that for well, your readers with that? Part of it was the nostalgia factor of mm-hmm. the just the title Sunday Suppers. I think you know strikes a chord in a lot of people. Absolutely. Obviously, our readership is heavily baby boom. and Alliteration and, uh, is always fun. Yes, alliteration is really good for the <laughs> copy editors and all that. But I think also it was because we sat, we meet every month. Uh, the senior staff meets every month to plan the magazine and discuss what's going on with it. It's We all stay in touch with each other as a group that way. Obviously, on a day-to-day basis, we talk a lot too. But to come together as a group every month, I think, is really a good idea with, sure. with me. Tell us about that meeting. I mean, who is it? I mean, give us some of the other publications for our listeners that don't know. And how does that meeting happen? I mean, is I it have with- no idea how other publications do it. I mean, my no, staff... No, I'm saying... Um- other Condé Nast, you meet with them? Is that who you mean? No, no, I mean my Your senior staff. staff. Oh, my senior it. staff. And we sat around and we a couple of months ago and we said, it's funny because we were just talking about this in the car on the way over here about how all of us you know, remember Sunday suppers as kids, but also how it seems to be a trend now with people getting together on mm-hmm. Sunday around six o'clock and they do have their friends come over. It's kind of a good way to start the week off. It's not just about your family, but it's also about having maybe some of your good friends. I have a, a friend in LA who's been doing it for a long time and and I've been lucky enough to go to a couple of those and I try to do it when I can, when I'm not traveling, which seems to be all the time now. <laughs> but it's yeah. just a nice way to kind of launch the week. You have people come over around five, you eat around six, everybody's gone by 8.30 or so. You still have a little bit of an evening to you know clean up and get your head together. What we tried to do also with this column is have a leftover component so that the supper that we suggest will always have something left over that you can make into something else for during the week, which we also talk about in the column. But I think part of it was... Anna and I are writing a dog pile cookbook, <laughs> which is, speaks to the leftover thing and textures <laughs> and what can be combined, even though you wouldn't think it. Anyway, that's cool. Dog pile cooking, not a column for Bon Appetit. But however, <laughs> Sunday suppers is a much nicer way to say it. So really, it was just responding to something that we're all experiencing. And I think, you know, part of the beauty of of being the editor in chief of a magazine, and certainly part of being at Bon Appetit is that we can 
you know, we're not afraid to change. We respond to what's going on and we say, okay, let's pull this two pages and put the two pages towards something else. And Well, that was a question that uh, Katie had and I wrote it down. How have um, recent developments in the publishing world changed? Like, what is a good story? Like, you've been with Bon Appetit for 32 years. What was a good story 32 years, 22, and, and, and today? Um, is it still the same publication or describe this Well, change. it's certainly a very different publication in its look and certainly a very different publication. Yeah, it looks, it, and I actually say it, it does look beautiful. Well, I mean, as a subscriber, I can tell you the photography is gorgeous. Thank you. The layout is really nice. I mean, it really does. I maybe look the best I've ever seen it. Thank you. We're, yeah, well, I'm very proud of the fact that I feel that we look the most modern and contemporary and least cluttered of any of mm-hmm. the other magazines that are out there. And I owe that all to our design director, Matthew Lenning. I give him a total tip Matthew of the hat. Matthew Lenning? Yes, correct. Okay. And uh, I give him a total tip of the hat to that and our photo editor, Bailey Franklin. They've both done a lot to not only change the, the look of the magazine, but also uh, really our our viewpoint. I mean, being based in California, I think has always given us a different editorial voice and a different look of of the way food is in America. I mean, California is where all the trends start. They come across the country, they land in New York, and then all the New Yorkers take credit for them. But anyway, when you think of San Francisco and LA and the influence that they have, and I also think it just gives us a different view of the entire country to not necessarily be based here in New York. It's it is definitely given us not. a different voice. So what would have what is a good story now? I mean a good story is because a some chef in Cleveland the, is doing something or is it because it's Your stories don't tend to be so chef driven. No, we're not because I think a lot of people are still intimidated by chef recipes. I mean September issue every year we do a big restaurant issue where we have a lot of chef recipes, right. but we are very specific in particular about the ones that we present because yeah. we want to encourage people to be in the kitchen and not just read about it. So but what is a good story? You know, I could say that the good story is the same thing in broad strokes that it was in 1978 when I started as an editorial assistant, which is how to entertain your friends on the weekend, have mm-hmm. a lot of fun, not spend a lot of time in the kitchen and have really good food that reflects what's going on today. And not spend too much money. And not spend either. too much money. I think that you are, I think Bon Appetit represents a slightly more broad-based demographic than, certainly than Gourmet did. Um, <clears throat> and that, you know, Sever does. And I mean, it's not, I mean, Sever seems to be very driven by travel, you know, by exploring new countries and stuff like that. And you guys, you keep it more... Well, we're very recipe-driven. I mean, yeah, I have to say, really... you know, the other... We're, we're very... We know our readers expect recipes, and we know, all of us know, whether they've been there 32 years or three months, know right. that in April we have to do Easter and Passover. In May we have a big travel issue. In June we're going to talk about Sever Entertaining. In July it's going to be about barbecue. September What's your biggest issue? Is I November... Know. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. That I've and always December. thought was... And are, December. Yeah, and Christmas. Are there any new recipes out there? I mean, I have to ask. Are you just recycling recipes? I mean, has someone come along now and then with just something that blows oh, the absolutely. mind? Oh, yeah. absolutely. We're, we're having, you know, I think that's why we've remained as popular as we are, which is we're presenting new things all the time. I mean, twists on America, modern twists on American classics is mm. really our mantra. And Italian classics and French classics so that people can use these new uh, ingredients. I mean, for instance, here's a great example. The April issue, we did a Passover menu where we had a matzo ball soup and a lemongrass broth. 
Hmm. Now, wow. there's something that everybody you know <clears throat> knows, matzo ball soup, but to add the lemongrass to it. And we had, you know, other things in the story that had mint. We had an Easter uh, brunch that had um, a lot of herbs in the eggs and, you know, bacon from... From, from all those places. Yeah. And uh, us, so again, that's how we're addressing it. Use, you know, what is a, a plum cot or a pluot or whatever they're calling them this yeah. month? You know, why, you know, why, wh- what do golden raspberries taste like? Yeah, try it out. And, and that's our column at the market, which we do every month right. as well in the front of the book. You know, yeah. fennel. You'd think that everybody knows what fennel is, but not everybody does. And they see it at the farmer's Finocchio. market and it looks great. And they want to know what to do with it. So we're there to help address that. We want to inspire people to come into the kitchen and really have fun. So talk about, uh, because you talked about recipes. I mean, another um, idea that Katie had when we had a meeting, because you know you were a big guest, so we had a meeting before. (laughs) No, we had actually a real meeting. Okay, We had a really planned plan. All right. (laughs) So uh, tell us about sources. I mean, here you are running a, you know, you have over 50 people working under you, and you have obviously delegation is an art form, and you are delegating. How do you trust sources? Um, how does someone prove to you that they know what's going on? And how do you delegate? I mean, speak to That's a little bit That's a great question. Well, people. I trust my staff. I mean, I trust my staff to be on top of the sources because I can't, you know, as you say, I have to... Trust is a big part of what I do. I also micromanage occasionally, as every I think every good editor-in-chief does. Usually after I see something in the magazine that I might not necessarily... You know, I kind of wonder how that got in there, but <laughs> but I have to trust my people, and they do. Uh, for instance, to go back to your other question, Patrick, about you know where we get our recipes from, we have new freelance recipe and food writers all the time in the magazine. It's part of what we want to do is is get new voices into because they're the ones who present the new ideas, and I can't find all those people, but my staff can, and I can trust my staff to find mm-hmm. people at a level that I know will be appropriate for Bon Appetit, the level of excellence that I insist upon and that our readers expect. And so that's very, you know, that's something it also gives them, you know, a voice in what we do and empowers them to know that I trust them to find the right people. And sometimes we don't find the right people. And then those recipes, we go to another writer and those recipes don't wind up in the magazine. We do, as I said, test everything. So if somebody has a, you know, a big dud, which knock on wood has not happened in years, then we (laughs) go away from that person. So I have, you know, that's all the dirt. That's my memoir when I retire is, Mm -hmm. you know, all the dirt on all those food writers you thought were so great. But... uh, Who can't That's even great. boil an egg? But That's yeah, but there you oh, go. I love it's not going to be about that. me. It's going to be about all the all the bo- where all the bodies are buried. Who, who cook? Well, fantastic. Let's take a uh, thirty second break so we can let Jack uh, tag the. Uh, yes. We're engineered uh, by Nat Weiner, and uh, we produced are produced by Jack Insley. And one of them has a nickname Rectech. I'm not sure which one, but one I know which one. Them. Which one? There's only one Rectech. Jack. No. I mean Nat. Nat. Rectech. Come on down to Marsh's place and dance it in the holler. Come on down, come on down, there's folks that you can follow. Through the trees of Marsh's place and dance it in the holler. Now everyone round Greenville knew Fridays in the holler, and Uncle Lorimer's roasted. 
and holler. My grandma and my grandpa danced all through heaven's door. But sometimes in the moonlight, you still can hear the laughter and the music of the holler. Hearst Ranch. We're sponsored today by Hearst Ranch. This is the main course. And Hearst we, Ranch, Brian, Kenny, Steve absolutely, Hearst. Talk yeah. about putting their money where their mouth is. All grass fed. All grass over- finished. Fe- finished, right. Make they the finished. finish, man, because everybody's grass fed until they go to the it. CAFO. Our chefs, other than Hearst Ranch, because we had a half cattle program, they like grass fed, corn finished. I know. Since 1865. So that goes back to my point about California, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Leading well, the trends. Good point. Our guest in studio today well, is Katie, Barbara you Fairchild. were there in 1865, <laughs> yes, which I is was. amazing. You were there for those first cattle coming in uh, and yeah. stuff. Yeah, I went on the gold rush, man. You read Laura Ingalls Wilder's first le- uh, Memorized book. them. You were like, she's never going to amount to anything. <laughs> and she said, are these grass finished and not just grass fed? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, you liars. Anyway, so we are um, we are sponsored by the Hearst Ranch, and uh, we They're have awesome. Barbara Fairchild in the studio with us, the editor in chief of Bon Appetit magazine. And Barbara, we were going to go back and ask you first. I wanted to kind of backtrack a little bit in your career because you've been at Bon Appetit for thirty two years, yes. which is an incredible. Jimmy Basically Carter. a career. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So when you Either started. An expert at, or a freak. I'm not sure yeah. which. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both, business. right? Um, so tell me how you got. How did you get started there? Did you come out of. I, I mean, came out, of, came out of college. School. I came out of basically. journalism school. Yeah. And I love to cook. And I was a subscriber to the magazine. And it was a complete and total fluke that I got the job as an editorial assistant because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I'm forever grateful. And my job, even as I. Uh, ascended up the ladder and had you know just about every title there is before I, I got to the top spot the job changes all the time because the food mm-hmm. world changes all the yes. time and what and the magazine changes all the time so even now going on 10 years as editor-in-chief which will be this July I can say that you know the magazine is completely different uh, well with, who was you your know, j- person before who was on top when you came in before uh, well who was on top when I came in was a woman who hired me a woman named Pat Brown uh, who left uh, shortly thereafter I came on in uh, August and she left uh, about the following February then a woman named Mary Lou Vaughn became the managing editor which was the top title at that time mm-hmm. and after Mary Lou was a gentleman named uh, William Gary Bill Gary who uh, definitely uh took me under his wing mm-hmm. what did uh, that mean like well would... i mean i think we hit it off because bill had a great sense of humor he came in as articles editor when i was still uh a i would have been an associate editor at that point and i was working with him to uh you know plan the features for the magazine and execute them find the writers etc cetera, etc cetera. And he and I just hit it off. I mean, he had a great sense of humor. I think he was very impressed uh, because both of us were big, our big movie buffs and, really? and you know, very buff, popular huh? culture. And I think what really impressed him was one day when it was pouring down rain in L.A., which is rare. And I think we were both kind of bored or we had, you know, done our work for the day and it was pretty gloomy outside. I was able to name for him all of the best picture winners since the beginning of the Academy Awards. So he wow. was, and then he would quiz me on other things, but that's because my, what was we first? quizzed you in the car today Wings, about, but you know, bewitched. it's funny because, um, because uh, <laughs> wow. um, I, and we just seem to be, you know, 
very simpatico. And uh, I was always his number two. When he became editor-in-chief, I became executive editor, which is the number two position at the magazine. I was there for almost 20, uh, 15 years as executive editor. And then Bill passed away in 2000, which mm. is never the way that you want to get the top job. But I'm glad it was me. And I know that he would have been glad that it was oh, me. Sure and I know my staff so. was really glad it was me. So It's uh, a way to honor his legacy, yeah, too, is and, that his number two becomes You know, one. as I said, you know, in the 10 years since I've been editor-in-chief, you know, we've changed the magazine dramatically. But still, our core is to be your friend in the kitchen. I think, you know, to boil it down to one phrase is that we want to help you be a better cook, but also know a lot more about what's going on in the food world. I think we've definitely, uh, since I've become editor, increased our the informational aspects of what we do so that people can get quick hits of what's important and, and educate themselves with, you know, about the personalities and the trends that are making up our food world right now. It's a, it's a big responsibility, but I really embrace it. When did, did you start the, I'm sorry, Patrick, no, uh, when did you start the Conscious Eater column, for instance? Because um, that's very much conscious speaks cook. to... Well, we conscious, call it Conscious, conscious cook, cook, because again, cooking is, you know, what we want to encourage. I think that's probably about two years old now. Uh-huh. So, you know, again, we've sort so of... So you that's were right where, on Because the, we needed yeah. to address all the sustainability, all of the farmer's markets, which, you know, in my 32-year career... This is about the third time around for the farmers markets for me, but I have to say that this time it's going to stick. And I think because it, it's not just a f- fad, fad right. but it's really and it's not even a trend. It's something now that is entrenched when it, you know when it comes to the the smallest local areas and when people now really realize the importance. And I think probably it's because food has just become so much a part of our cultural conversation whether you're talking about you know, eat this, not that, or, you know, fast food or supermarkets or, you know, Whole Foods versus this thing. It just, everybody talks about it now. And that wasn't true in the past. Let me ask, what did you learn from your mentor? Um, You know, the guy who took you under the wing. And I mean, like, what are some of the things that, you know, secrets to managing people and staying current? Like, what are some of the things that you still say? Wow, like uh, I saw him do that once, and uh, and now I'm doing it. Yeah, but I never understood why he was doing it. Huh. Well, I have to say, in all honesty, uh, Bill did a very good job of sort of not—I don't want to say not training me, but it, it. When I was executive editor, I was in charge of really forming and framing the editorial vision of Bon Appetit and finding the writers and when you move into the number two spot that's really is what you do and the editor-in-chief's job as I now realize has a lot of business and management aspects to it budgets etc etc I was kept shielded from all that and I now understand I mean not just now 10 years later but I would say within the first year I understood why because it occupies so much of your time mm. that you have to have a number two who you can rely on. And I certainly do in Victoria Von Beel, who really is, is, you know, I made sure that Victoria is more aware of things that I was not aware of when I was executive editor, because I think it's important for her to have a bigger picture than I did. Now, whether that would have, if I had had that bigger picture at the time, had hampered, would have hampered me from doing the job of executive editor, I, it, you know, you can't tell. But I do, I feel, 
impart information to Victoria and several other members of my senior staff that Bill did not do. And he had his way of doing the magazine, and I have my way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And certainly he was an excellent teacher, but it's also important to put your own stamp on it. It seems like two such different skill sets. I mean, one is running the magazine like we would all imagine it. Explain this other side, this dark underbelly of it all. (laughs) It's not a dark underbelly. It's that you want to keep the magazine fresh and you want to run the magazine well and you have a certain amount of dollars to do that and you want to make sure that you have the right people Mm -hmm. and enough people and you need to be able to be a good manager as well as an idea person so you have a staff that you rely on to help you with the ideas and you think they're good or they're not so good or tweak it this way or tweak it that way and yes that would be a better story for us in the meantime, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how we can take those extra five photographs or reshoot the cover if it's not up yeah. to what I want it to be. <laughs> well, let me, I want to backtrack to something you just referred to a minute ago when you were talking about how you're sharing a little bit more with Victoria than Bill may have shared with you. And I'm wondering if that isn't a kind of a reflection of the times in the sense that the magazine publishing world has undergone such a tremendous sea change and everybody is kind of hanging on for dear life in the, and this leads us into the new media question. Um, but, you know, things have changed so much and it's so much harder to get the advertising dollars to support the magazine. It's so much harder to just bear the cost of printing it and sending it. So how has, I mean, I'm sure that bringing Victoria into some of the management side is also helping her form an idea about where you should go in terms of new media. So what, what, well, you know, I mean, you guys have I, that's actually the, now the responsibility and, of an editor in chief is it isn't about only the magazine anymore. And right. that's why it's very important to have a strong number two who will concentrate on the magazine while we also have bonapetit.com, our website. We have an iPhone application that's launching within the next month. Incredible. We're going to be on the iPad probably by the end of the year. Uh, we have cookbooks that we do, of course, of that course. everybody likes to buy, which we have a lovely, fabulous new cookbook <laughs> coming out in October. Oh, great. Uh, so, or in November, rather. So, on desserts. So, watch for that. Absolutely I stunning hope come back and to talk delicious. About that. Oh, I will. Yeah. And I'll bring you each a a book I a love dessert them. oh uh, all desserts it's just uh, you know it was time because it's was something that we do every single month in the magazine that yes. really no other magazine does which we still indulge ourselves and indulge our readers because people do love to eat it eat desserts they love to make desserts and some people make only desserts they don't care about the rest of the meal but That's exactly right but everybody loves to look at those pictures and so we you know we, something i'm very proud of that we never went away from that in uh-huh. the in the entire time that i've been in the magazine every single month we have a dessert feature do you recommend por- a lard being used for pie crust it depends also again patrick it's the person who we choose to write the story if that person what? likes lard and a mix of half lard and half not lard or butter and this or it really has goes back to again what the person right. who's writing the story for us you know wants to do with his or her pie crust mm-hmm. so it's television is something that we've been looking at for a long time you know a show that's that's very much we're, we've all been on television and other shows but we don't have a Bon Appetit show radio is something that we're also interested in mm-hmm. so Katie and I thought about television but then we decided we have better faces for the radio yeah we I, I we well they can't you know sit around, <laughs> this is kind of a neat setting for television actually but anyway um, <laughs> I don't know we yeah, and television you have to be very mean and you have to yell and have people crying and that's not no. really what we're about but well I mean the shows, the competition shows that are on now. I oh, think those are of, yeah, yeah horrible, I mean. disgusting. So It'd be like a mud wrestling match, Barbara and Ruth, or something. <laughs> so in a way, it's you know you have to be um, 
you have to be a business person who can look mm-hmm. to the future and figure out what's happening and coming up. And you have to be out there sort of hustling that doing that making it happen. while yeah. the other people are still doing that magazine that's supposed to come out 12 times, times a year. A year yeah. That is the flagship of everything that you do. So everything that you that we do still springs from the magazine. Right. But we need to keep branching out and getting our names I'm, keeping our names I'm out fascinated there. by this iPhone application and the iPad applications that you're working on now and I was thinking yesterday I was uh, peering into the window of Pogan Pole the kitchen oh, designers yes, uh-huh. and they had a big flat screen TV hanging from the cabinet you know next to the sink and I was thinking wow you know that's really kind of not well you don't even need that because the iPad comes on a stand so you can have the iPad tilted up on your but obviously that's what it was meant for is that you can just plug your computer in and have the the recipe come up on the the thing yeah amazing yeah so I mean it's a whole new world and I'm really excited about it because there's so much that we can offer uh, on an iPad that we can't necessarily do in a in a print medium. But on the other hand, not everybody is going to have an iPad. Right. People, are you gonna, there are still people who want to sit down with a glass of wine and thumb through a glossy magazine, and I'm one of them, whether it's Bon Appetit or one that's not even in our category. Yeah. And there are people who will take the iPhone to their grocery store and get a shopping list off of Bon Appetit's iPhone application and shop for dinner that night which is another way of approaching the magazine but not necessarily take it into the kitchen when they're cooking the recipe so I want to make sure that everybody who wants to be involved with Bon Appetit and everybody who's interested in our world can access the magazine or access our content the way that works the best for them and whether they do it in three of those ways two of those ways one of those ways that's up to them. And, but you your know, print I'm, publication, though, doesn't that divide your readership out? And like uh, someone who buys ads in the paper, in your magazine, actually are like, well, now you're all media and people can access the magazine without seeing the cover ad that we took out or the inside Well, I cover. think part of it, I mean, that's not my job, uh, thank goodness. But I mean, part <laughs> of it is that now what you could do is you could buy into all of those platforms, as we call them. I see. So in other words, you spend X amount of money, you get an ad in the magazine, you get an ad on the iPhone, you right. get into the pad, you, I mean, so there's, huh. believe me, they're not, not, not on my side of the aisle, but on the other side of the aisle, there are people who are trying to figure out how that structure is going to work. So I, you know, I don't see the death of magazines, I tend to be optimistic. Mm-hmm. I'm the, you know, the glass is half full kind of person. I was very proud of the fact that Bon Appetit is the first and still the only magazine that has a monthly columnist who is a blogger, Molly Weisenberg Orangette. She's been writing a column for us for almost three years now. And so we want to have the people who are in the blogosphere come to us as well, because we have a very quality product and a very quality publication. And I really am still, after all this time, so committed to what we do. And I really believe that we do it the best of anybody. That's great. Who are your major sponsors throughout the years? Like, who is one of the most long-standing advertisers? Oh, you know, I don't really want to say because I don't want to say the wrong one. The wrong one, okay. But uh, we have, you know, many airlines and credit cards and, you know, uh, those kinds of Lifestyle. Those kinds of lifestyle lifestyle, automobiles, certainly, and and also, uh, you know, not uh, some travel. You know, it varies. 
Christ. Barbara, let's go back for just a second to the uh, to the um, the whole sort of electronic media thing, which just fascinates me because I I'm I'm very interested. You know, I used to publicize cookbooks mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. forth. And so when people are able to download these apps onto, say, their iPad or you know use it, watch it on TV, and I have sure. another a secondary question right. to go along with that, but. How, you know, is that going to have, do you think, what kind of an impact do you think that will have on cookbook publishers? Do you think that well, this our is going to really our, crush? Well, our book coming out in November is going to be an ebook as well as a print book. Really? So, again, if you want to have Bon Appetit desserts, you can have them digitally or you can yeah. have them in a, in a big book that sits and in on a your digital, counter. I'm sorry, in a digital format, are you are you able to publish things like sort of how-to, you know, technical, like we will you could do a magazine. little video? I, yes. I mean, when we do you eventually, can't do that, you know, in a, in a yeah. A perfect world with unlimited amounts of money right <laughs> when you get the magazine through the ipad you'll get mm-hmm. video and you'll get you know how to chop an onion or how to carve yeah. your turkey and that kind of thing that we used to do through you also can get through that on the website pages. yeah and what was also very important to us when we were planning all of these things is to not have everything necessarily repeat everything that's in the magazine because we oh, still sure. want people to buy the magazine so our iphone application will be of the magazine but not necessarily of the current issue in other words it's going to do something different we're still working on it so i don't want to uh, say something that's going to wind up not being part of it but it's not a repeat of what you're going to get if you buy the magazine on the newsstand Mm -hmm. or get it as a subscriber it's something different again what we do at bonappetit.com is not necessarily just you know a repeat of what you find in the issue but we Mm -hmm. tinker with it a lot of different ways a lot of fun ways we have great slideshows on the website so um, that's something else that I want to ramp up in the next year or two because I think our website is just so much fun and of course we have the archives of the magazine available on it Mm -hmm. but there are just a lot of ways to slice and dice it no pun intended we have a wonderful Mm -hmm. weekly uh, uh, e-newsletter called Take Mm 5 that anyone listening can sign up for just by going to bonappetit.com and looking on the right rail and Jack do we have an issue with the hot five is that Take 5 we have a hot five we have a hot five on this we always have the hot 10 a hot 10 oh my god we have a hot 10 in the issue every every month are you a high tech person personally i mean you commute from la to new york i do i'm getting more of that i mean i have an iphone and because we were talking about an iphone application and i thought okay i better get an iphone yeah, i don't know one. what the heck we're talking about but so and now of course i've become besotted by it because it has my ipod on it now and and i read we were talking before the show uh that you know i can sit in the airport now and read the new york times on it although i still read also again as a print user i also read the new york times sure. in its print form but when i'm sitting in an airport mm-hmm. and i'm stuck waiting for a flight that's six hours late uh it's a great way to keep up on you know the new york times huffington post you know i was gonna the ask guilty what you pleasures read. Okay, of D- tmz and <laughs> and all that kind of stuff yelp google you know I art of eating there. do you read ed bears is that an iphone app though oh i don't know see that's the problem not. not everything's on the iphone yet oh yeah so, well definitely ed bear yeah. is not it so yeah like yeah <laughs> yeah now, um, I also want to ask, in terms of uh, commuting back and forth, I mean, I, I know you commute to New York. Are you at liberty to talk a little bit about what that meeting is like when you come and present your publication to the powers that be at Condé Nast, and likewise all the other editors? Yes, everybody who's an editor-in-chief does that every month. So, so what is that? Who I are come you from talking LA to? How do you present Chris Anderson it? from Wired comes from San Francisco. We're talking to Mr. Newhouse himself, uh-huh. uh, Cy Newhouse, who owns Condé Nast, mm-hmm. who you know is still very much involved on a day-to-day basis you know i'm not really sure because i read you know i read 
various things. He's he's 78 or he's 82 or he's 84. I'm not really sure how old he is. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, he's definitely there. The president of the company, Chuck Townsend, is there. My direct boss, Tom Wallace, who's the editorial director. Our publisher comes with me. Uh, the director of circulation is there. Our, per- our person for consumer marketing, called Consumer Marketing Now. And what do you show them? And what- I show them the issue that we're getting ready to send to the printer. So okay. I just last week when I was here, I've... I've done something this time that I rarely do, which is two trips within a week of each other. I was just here last week, but uh, I just showed the June issue, and I'm getting ready to show July. I'll show July in the middle of May, come back in about two weeks uh, to show that, and we, I take them through it page by page on a, a laptop presentation. And all the other editors are there? No, 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 oh, just myself. Just It's just uh, only a meeting for Bon Appetit. So, uh, and we get the latest newsstand numbers for our publication, and, and we see the some of the competition is on that sheet as well. And um, it's just, it's actually, for me, it's a great meeting because... Sounds stressful. Uh, I mean, coming up from... The July issue, which is the next one I'll show, which is the barbecue issue, which I just saw uh, last week in L.A. or earlier this week. Uh, absolutely spectacular. I mean, I'm being completely egotistical about this, but really, it is <laughs> such an amazing issue visually and in its recipe content. I am so proud of it that to walk into that meeting and the cover is just fabulous i mean to walk into that meeting i'm so proud of what we've done even though the numbers part of it might be a little bit stressful the rest of it is just you know telling them what's coming up and look at this picture and Mm -hmm. look at the story and look at this delicious pork roast that's you know that we have in the june issue actually that's done like a porchetta again porchetta something in the ether right now people hear about it yes. maybe they don't have or have time to you know can't get it or don't know what it is we've done a pork roast in a with the porchetta style seasoning again mm-hmm. bringing that home to the the home cook and people in parts of the country who can't get porchetta so again we're we're teaching new things through well, fantastic. a pork roast. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I mean, now uh, we had that you got into the meat issue, and um, Jack's about to get um, uh, Nick on uh, the radio. I mean, um, and uh, we're talking about um, meats. Like, is it Bon Appetit's job to, and is it the media's job? I'm saying in, intelligent, intellectual people that understand that, you know fast food is hurting us i mean can you what stance can you take on that for instance to do a barbecue issue do you recommend that everyone buys from their farmer's market or is that just in the conscious chef well what we do for that is first of all we hire somebody brilliant like bruce adels to do the story i see uh or or stephen reichlin in the case of the july issue Mm -hmm. right uh i've worked with stephen reichlin he's a great guy and he wrote the barbecue bible so why not why not go to the source absolutely but he you know what we do is we have a recipe that calls for a five pound t-bone or whatever we're calling for Mm -hmm. and we don't say it has to be grass-fed we don't say it has to be from this farm or the other farm or whatever we might have something in the head that you know if you can get grass-fed beef or in the recipe lead rather you know that would be really great Mm -hmm. but we're not there to preach we're there to our readers are adults they make their own choices we can tell them the conscious cook uh, all Mm -hmm. about this ranch that you can order meat from or or you know it's how we found out about Patrick and, and, you know, run Heritage Foods quite often, especially mm-hmm. around Thank Thanksgiving. You. Yeah, uh, you are so a very that people great can, supporter. you know, order it off the website or order it on the phone, et cetera, et cetera. We do a lot of things now. Again, you know, 
the world of, of food has become much smaller thanks to the internet options. And I think that's what we do. We're you're we like Hollywood. You, you bring up the issues and then let people make their I'll own decisions. Let people decision. decide. I mean, not everybody can a has access to it unless they order it online and right. B not everyone can afford it. True. So you have to use what you can use. And when we shop for the testing, we shop at supermarkets like Whole Foods or Gelson's or even Ralph's, which would be the equivalent of let's say, you know, Whole Foods obviously you have here in New York, uh, a fairway and mm-hmm. also, you know, uh, and th- that level, Wegmans, Food Emporium, et cetera, et cetera. Ooh, Wegmans, interesting that you mentioned that. But, That's uh, a New York-based. Right. Uh, These are all the ones that I'm saying, you know. So Ralph, but, their, their uh, motto should be, our food is so good, you will Ralph. You will eat so much <laughs> of it that you will Ralph. No. But the, not just no, that's say not, that. That's not really good for a food thing. But that's anyway. true. No, but it's so delicious. It's like the dog pile cooking. I'm not yeah. sure that's a good yeah, one either. But uh, so, it's so good. Listen, that's but, that's a, but that's a general. I mean, the reason I brought up things like Ralph's in California, Safeway, those things, is that these are broader supermarkets yeah. that most people have access. More people have access to. So you have to, you know. You have to let people use what they can use. They can make their own choices. And I went to meet Sam Cass, who's the uh, Obama's personal chef. Anne and I were invited down to D.C. to be part of this panel. And, I mean, he started that meeting off first thing. And he was like, Cisco, Costco, this is what feeds the population. Yeah. But look so at them, how, how the quality there them? has gone up. I mean, the meat yes. at Costco. I'll tell you who first told me about how great the meat at Costco was. That was Julia Child. And that was probably about 1989. Wow. I mean, she. I, I was working on a story about where famous food people shop. And she was right north of you, She right? was in she Santa Barbara, in yeah. And I had obviously, well, not obviously, but I did know her and, and you know, used to see her a few times a year go up and have dinner with her but I mm, interviewed fun. her for this piece that I did about where they shop and she said oh I buy all my meat at Costco and I was like really <laughs> I couldn't get over it and she's the one who got me to go to Costco and I am just amazed at what I see there and how they support not just the the meat that's there but the wines and the uh-huh. sparkling wines and the everything I mean the quality of their desserts and uh, that they I see them assembling right there with these amazing looking fruits that they can get i mean i have to you know tip my hat to uh places like costco because the quality there has really really gone up well um jack do we have nick on not quite yet we need um, to take a short break and then we'll come back with nick phantasma oh really okay uh-huh. and uh and we'll take another Barbara break Fairchild. all right yeah just get nick on we'll uh start again I went across to Switzerland where all the yodlers be To try to learn to yodel with the yodel I climbed a big high mountain on a clear and sunny day And met a yodel and got up in that little sweet chalet Oh, he taught me to yodel Oh, <laughs> 
like me It's easy when you're singing to the yodel o do Well, here we are back. Uh, we're talking uh, slaughterhouses. We're talking with Barbara Fairchild. We are sponsored by Hearst Ranch. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Katie Kiefer. And uh, we're going to have uh, Sam uh, Mag-anum? Mogano. Mogannum. Um, <laughs> but uh, we are going to have Nick on. I mean, this is a big show for us. We were so honored that Barbara, you know, would take the time. Uh, to to come out here and and um, this is like our big it's like uh, uh, sweep weeks for us right Absolutely. here. So we wanted to bring up issues. Um, we're going to be talking about Sam and also Ruth. The main issues with them is distribution. Uh, Katie has always been a big uh, proponent that distribution is the bottleneck. So we're going to ask about how you maintain and processing. How many? Right? Just real quick. Uh, venue. I mean, some people just buy from Cisco. Or just buy from U.S. Foods. How many people do you buy from? Yeah, we've got over 400 active active I mean, people we buy from, and then it's probably closer to 800 all said and done. Unbelievable. So that's a really fascinating thing to this network. We're going to be talking about Sam later. But um, another big issue to us is the nitty-gritty of the food world that everybody seems to want to avoid. And I love hearing about fruits and vegetables, but I want to hear about what they call the center of the plate. And we have no one better. I mean, I will have a slaughterhouse top slaughterhouse competition and i guarantee nick will be the winner or in the top two or three every single time he is one of the hardest workers he manages a team of like 30 people he is slaughters 150 pigs a week for heritage but then many other animals they're going through a huge expansion i'm a big fan of his an admirer i should say um nick phantasma nick are you with us yes i am hey nick how are you so, Nick, tell us about, um, you know, what's going on, uh, you know, in the slaughterhouse world. I mean, we hear this call for new slaughterhouses, new slaughterhouses, but it's a huge challenge to run one. Speak a little bit to the, the challenges of running a USDA-inspected slaughterhouse. Um, the, uh, you know, like, essentially like owning any business, um, owning a, a small business or even a USDA slaughterhouse, there's... There's a lot of stuff entailed in in running your own business, um, uh, but a USDA slaughterhouse. On top of that, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, additional, or there's a lot of uh, paperwork that we have to uh, keep up with on a day-to-day basis, and and keeping us keeping ourselves up to date on constantly changing uh, regulations within the within the food world that. Um, you know different uh, different regulations that people want to instill FSIS and USDA to try and make um, the the food world in this country safer. How does that news come down the pipeline? So they come up with the new rule at the USDA. How does that information arrive to you? You have a full time USDA inspector who works at your plant. How does it get to him? How does it get to your cup floor? Tell us a little bit about that process, maybe through the lens of one of the more recent regulations. Uh, essentially, you know, with uh, with the ease of the internet now, um, pretty much all regulations are passed down uh, via email and um, uh, email uh, alerts um, to our USDA inspector and to our uh, HACCP coordinator. Uh, Mary Switlick. Everything. Mary. She thinks I hate her, but I love her to death. She is an awesome employee of the year person. 
Yeah, she does a very, very good job for us. Um, it's it's a lot of work to uh, to keep up with all the all the regulations and all the paperwork and and just day to day paperwork that we have to do uh, for for USDA. And uh, there's there's a lot entailed in that, and it's a it's a very very uh, tasking job for for anyone to undertake. What are some of the examples? Like they tell you, you need to hold the hands in the cure area for an extra week. Like, give us an example of. What does the USDA? What new rules? Also, can do you com- can you compare what you have to do to what uh, really big slaughter facilities have to do, and is there a difference? And if so, what's the impact on you as a smaller business? Uh, essentially, you know, all the all the food processing rules and regulations are um, standard for everyone across the board. It doesn't matter if it's if it's uh, a big slaughterhouse slaughtering thirty thousand hogs a day or a small slaughterhouse like us that do seventy five a day. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone that's processing under USDA regular under USDA inspection has to abide by the same rules. Um, is that expensive? Uh, not as of right now, no. Mm-hmm. Well, that's um, a big issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. With with the new um, validation rules that FSIS is trying to push through. Uh, Who is FCIS? FSIS. Sorry. Yeah. FSIS is a food administration with. Uh, that works uh, alongside the USDA. Food um, Safety Inspection Services is what correct. that means. Right. Um, they work alongside with the USDA to um, update regulations, you know, as times change, uh, different um, methods or uh, techniques for certain sanitation aspects or processing aspects may change due to technology or, or what have you. Um, so they, they keep updated on um different regulations that come through uh, or, or enforcing new regulations or eliminating old regulations that don't necessarily apply to practical standards today. Um, when, and when you're talking about the expense of it, on a normal basis, um, the expense of USDA inspection or um, the, the paperwork that we do on a day-to-day basis isn't that intensive you know we've made it a part of our day-to-day routine mm-hmm. um to where it just flows with with mm-hmm. production um and now all of a sudden they're asking you to t- if you have 50 products they're asking you to do what you do currently times 50 exactly right now the 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 testing system that they have is a random a random testing system um the uh, our inspectors um bosses will send him uh, a variety of tests on a periodic basis usually it's um he'll have one that comes through you know say on on ground beef he'll have a test that he needs to pull on ground beef to Mm -hmm. check for uh the presence of e coli and he has that come to him about once a month or once every other month just a randomized test that we try and and push through if we're processing under usda for a private label farmer for any um you know usda processing that we're doing we'll pull that sample and um, it's it's a it's a very good system. It's very randomized, so that um, you it's it's hard for someone to try and get around the the testing system that they have now. The validation issues that they're trying, or the validation regulations that they're trying to push through right now, will require any plant processing under USDA to test each and every single batch that 
you process under USDA on each different product that you process under USDA. Um, so what could that cost you per item? Per item, well, uh, specifically per item, I don't know the exact amount. The, the overall cost that we have figured together um, within the first year uh, between validation uh, costs and testing costs on our products that we do as of right now would cost us over $500,000 for the first year. Does that mean we have a price increase coming down the pipeline? <laughs> no, <I'm> just... <laughs> that um, that would that would mean that it's a thousand dollars. Everybody across the board for proteins in this country would see prices skyrocketing. Yeah. Um, um, essentially, that's you know that would force small businesses like us mm-hmm. pretty much out of the USDA market. Or you know? what it would do is make you have to concentrate on three products. And that's it. So, I mean, I think it's a big way of the big guys squeezing out the little guys. And my question always to those big guys is, Paradise Soccer Meat is not a threat. You know, I mean, Smithfield is producing 500,000 pigs a week. Uh, You know, your number of pigs is not a threat. They should find ways of making exceptions to the rule. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing right now that we're... I'm not necessarily, we don't necessarily see it as something that is, that the big guys are trying to enforce on us, Um, because the big slaughterhouses are are subject to these new regulations just like we are. They're going to be able to absorb the cost a lot, a lot better than we will. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, and, and the big slaughterhouses deal primarily in primal cuts. And, and different things, um, you know, just the basic primal cuts, and then ship it out in boxed meat. So their product base isn't near as wide as a small processor like us, as somebody who does further processing with cured products and different sausages and that kind of thing. Let me ask you another question, Nick, that this sort of goes back to the idea of, of the scale of you versus them. So, for instance... In a place like Paradise Locker Meats, you have the ultimate traceability. You know exactly where every single animal is coming from. They label every right? single piece of meat that Whereas comes out of there. Whereas somebody yeah, like every, Smithfield every. is buying pigs from basically all over the world, wherever they have, you know, like they're bringing them up from South America, mm-hmm. right? Isn't that true? They aggregate, they aggregate cattle. Yeah, right. they don't and, know and, farm and by farm. They'll slaughter them in, in, in South America, then they send the meat up north, and then it gets further processed. It's broken into the primals, and it turns into ground meat. And that's where it tends to have the, the contamination vectors come into play. Am I right there? Well, yeah, when you're, when you're talking about doing so many animals in one day, yeah. um, doing, pushing, pushing the envelope of how much production can be done in one day. Yeah, like 3,000 um, cows a day or whatever demented yeah, exactly. chain speed it is. Yeah. It's crazy. But I guess my point here is that you, since you know where every single animal is coming from and you're only processing 75 animals a day as opposed to somebody like a Smithfield plant that's doing 3,000... They should be exempt There should certain. be a difference in your regulations. And I think that that's... I don't, you know, I'm like you. I'm not going to say, oh, it's the big guys trying to force the small guys out. It's also I'm, how bad the some of the little guys are. Paradise is top and notch, yeah. and they let people chew their plant. There are a lot of little state guys that are screwy, and if I was a USDA, I'd want to shut them out too. But anyway, it should be a case by case basis, just like you know these certification groups go from farm. So how to can farm you grow? Decide, a, how can you grow slaughtering facilities if you have to do it a case by case basis? I don't think that seems practical. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, as as far as as far as regulatory systems go for a food 
company or for food in general, you know, I, I feel that the system that they have in place right now with HACCP, with hazard analysis mm-hmm. and critical control points and, and the regulations that come through about temperature monitoring and that kind of thing, you know, everybody right. has to abide by that. And it's, it's very simple practices um, and very simple items that, that can be handled on a day-to-day basis for a small facility like us. And it doesn't require a lot of outlay in infrastructure. Exactly. Um, you know, essentially, it's just more paperwork to file and keep mm-hmm. track of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but but when you're when you're starting to talk and, and make demands on people that that every single product that goes through their facility, <laughs> every single batch of hams uh, that's cooked, which for us is as uh, you know, fifty to sixty hams. Yeah. Um, that every single one of those, or every batch. Yeah. Every single batch. Okay, um, so because it's 50 when, when or you're 60 talking hams. with USDA and you're talking production, um, they they deal with lots, mm-hmm. and a lot um, can be varied depending on depending on what uh, how many you can cook at one time. How because they're not going to batch a hams you know that were cooked two days ago with hams that were cooked today. Yeah, right. of course that makes sense. Um, because you know it's it's possible that that say one batch of hams doesn't uh, doesn't reach the uh, lethality point of of the uh, fully cooked product of of being at 145 degrees for three to four minutes. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, this is all so crazy. I say, I hope Tom Belisac is listening to it because <laughs> appoint a friggin' czar and fix this problem. Period. Today, uh, they are not. They are so strategic. It takes them so long to move one inch. Hire a friggin' czar and fix this problem because Paradise is barely struggling along. They're scared. The few existing slaughterhouses that exist are in jeopardy. Fix it. Put someone on it now. I mean, I, I, I am uh, such a fan of the hard work that the Phantasma is doing and that they should lose even a minute of sleep because of some something that, that, that is not providing a solution for them. And they could bankrupt them if it goes through in the full thing. You know, I don't know what's going on. And maybe the Phantasmas should then create grants. You know, because maybe HACCP was fought against by small plants back then, too, when it first got introduced. So create grants, create friggin' the $50 million that would be needed to cover all the great slaughterhouses. But if it's a great slaughterhouse, empower these people, give them the answers, fix the problems, and you don't, it's not brain surgery. I think there's only a few thousand slaughterhouses in the country anyway. You could have two people instantly have connection to all of them. It's like the cheesemakers. Everyone's like, oh, American cheese. There's only two or 300 great cheesemakers in this country. It's not an endless number. It is a small number. It can yeah, be fixed. And, and Nick, you are absolutely. doing God's work. Be. You're doing and God's work. You treat the animals right at their final days, and you never mess up a cut, which is a sacred pact you have with all those small farmers that spend a year raising those animals. That's doing God's work, and um, you know anyone that doesn't support that isn't supporting God's work, which, taking that logic all the way, means they're probably going to go to hell because they are not Jeez, protecting. No, I don't mean that. That's I had no too idea much. You were so. I am get adamant. All evangelical. On us. They're talking about the lack of slaughterhouse. Here's an existing slaughterhouse that is struggling yeah. and that's scared. Fix it. Peace of mind. That's the government's duty. And slaughterhouse. 
people should be just as respected as people on the Upper West Side. I don't really mean that thing about going to hell. I was taking it too far. But, Nick, you're doing God's work. We have to go now, but we want you many times, and we want you to come yeah, to Nick, city. Yeah, Nick, it would be great to get a regular, you know, check in regularly with you and talk about this stuff, because I think it's a great mystery to consumers. I think that they don't understand what is involved in processing uh, regionally, locally, you know, uh, artisanally raised animals, etc. Right, I think yeah, it's really most, important to hear from guys like you. Yeah, Absolutely. most people, most people in the country right now don't, um, because they, you know, there there are a few select people in in the Midwest and in rural communities around the country that that still know about old style farm raising pigs and and custom slaughterhouses and, yeah. and dealing with top top quality product rather than animals being raised in feedlots and stuff like that. So getting the knowledge out to as many people as possible is is the hugest or the the, the biggest. Um, obstacle in our way because we need the support well i wish we could help more often with this station unfortunately we have zero listeners no just kidding (laughs) we have some listeners yeah about four we're trying nick nick you're gonna come back thank you so much for joining us today and absolutely um, thank you for having me we'll be talking to you soon and i think we're gonna take like a. we're gonna take a break but we did have one quick question from a listener so we never wanted to turn there was a call in but we we had someone else on the phone so it's a question you have a listener yeah we have one (laughs) so my mother asks just kidding (laughs) it's not my mother okay (laughs) (laughs) listening from LA (laughs) this is a uh, question from a gentleman named Curtis who is in uh, Upper West Side although you keep up with trends to what extent do you exercise editorial limitations on writers do you kill stories because you feel they are off track is there a party line at Bon Appetit if a writer was on track um, with something that you disagreed would you let them write on it so speak to well i'm not really sure what kind of uh, story i'm necessarily thinking about uh, we plan our issues ahead of time we, we don't just wait for people to write to us with stories and you know send things in and hope that we'll be able to kapachki uh, an issue out of it so our issues are you know well planned ahead of time and we uh, with when it comes to new writers we will work with them to you know get the recipes the recipe story that we think we're going to get. Sometimes we get a little surprised, and if the recipes test well and and we can incorporate them or, or again, tweak the story idea that we were thinking of a little bit, then we'll go ahead and do it. There, there isn't really any kind of a... We're very open-minded, I guess, if that's what you're trying to ask. We have travel stories that we do that have become, uh, again, much more specific in their... Uh, in what we cover. We're not trying to cover an entire country in one article where you know we just did a wonderful mm-hmm. story on uh you know those bartenders in tokyo who do all that crazy stuff with the ice you know that mm-hmm. was a story that oh, we yeah. you know came upon yeah, in, in our ice, you yeah. know we just thought it was a great idea for us and so we had somebody write that for us uh so no we're very open-minded we don't kill the only things we kill are recipes that don't test well and we always give the writer another chance to give us something else and or another recipe that would work with the story. So I think maybe you're thinking of something more like the New York writerly, Times like the New Yorker awesome. or, you know, the Atlantic or other magazines that have long form writing in the food world that um, can address the issues that I think you're talking about. But, you know, as far as our long form stories are concerned, it's really all about travel and entertaining. 
Well, excellent. Um, we are about to take a break. We're going to come back with Sam and uh, this Chilean And then chef. we have Ruth Van de Verenbeck. Van de Verenbeck, nice yeah. pronunciation. But we're going to come back with Steve Pope, who's going to talk about heritage poultry and give Katie and I a much-needed vocal rest. Yeah. with Heritage Food Network today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, liver, and we're going to talk a little bit about gizzards, and maybe a little bit about hearts. But before we go into that on chickens, I'm going to talk a little bit again about the chicken carcass uh, stock that I talked about last week. I, uh, I went ahead and did a, a test kitchen run on, a, on, a, on this particular product, and I'm amazed at how much meat that there was left on the bones when I received the uh, the sampling of it. And I ended up making chicken and dumplings, something I haven't done for some time. And I will tell you that there is enough meat in that carcass to actually do that, not just to make your stock, but I'm amazed at the amount of meat that's left over uh, once they uh, uh, debone and everything for the for the meat, uh, such as the uh, breast meat, all of that. So it was quite a treat for me to, to find out uh, how that goes. And if you're interested in it, you know that all you got to do is get a hold of Patrick Martin to the heritage food themselves, and they'll be happy to hook you up. Not to sound like a commercial, it's the truth. So today let's talk a little bit about, uh, like I say, the liver, gizzard, a little bit about heart. One thing historically about uh, especially liver and gizzards uh, with chickens is that they were once ground up or sliced up very thin and made into uh, somewhat of a pate for baby food. They knew that they had a lot of... uh, I didn't know what it was, but they, they because there was a lot of calorie, a lot of nutriment in there. Uh, a gizzard itself has about 225 calories per serving. If you look at a serving of uh, of two or one gizzard, I'm sorry. But what happens is is that it breaks down very difficult. So you have to uh, to really cook that uh, gizzard and liver long enough to make a uh, a nice uh, whipped pate, if you want. One of the things that I have today is, is also a recipe that I got from Jasper Mirabelli, and he's in Kansas City. He has a, a book out, a wonderful guide, uh, strictly Italian, and he gave me this recipe for what he calls heritage chicken liver pate. Now, we know that goose liver makes wonderful pate, the photograph, but a lot of people aren't aware that you can actually make great liver pate with, uh, with chicken 
So let me give you a brief uh, point of the recipe on that and see if you uh, see if you think it might be good. You just use a pint of uh, the Heritage chicken livers and salt and pepper to taste. You're going to use allspice, about a half a teaspoon, about a half a teaspoon of apple pie spice. Yes, I said apple pie spice. One half medium onion, about three tablespoons of brandy, and a half a cup of whipped cream. And then you can also add your favorite herbs, such as uh, thyme, rosemary, or marjoram. All you have to do is rinse those chicken livers in a medium saute pan, melt some butter, saute those with minced onions until translucent. You add your chicken livers, and I I, uh, uh, say that you can go ahead and pre-cut some of them up to help break them down a little bit. And you saute for about four or five minutes until you get make sure that they're cooked completely through and pink. The pink part disappears. Season with salt and pepper. Splash uh, the pan with a little bit of the brandy and remove it from the heat. Now you cool it down, and you add a this mixture to the blender. And what you do is you add the allspice, apple pie spice the herbs and the cream, and then you blend that until it's very creamy and fluffy. And then, of course, you add more cream if needed. You can put this in small china cups or put it on your favorite crackers, this type of thing. And I promise it will be a hit at any gathering. It's nutritious, and if you're not into uh, the idea of eating livers and gizzards, etc., this is one recipe that I guarantee you'll enjoy. Gizzards, I can't think of gizzards without thinking of Thanksgiving and, and stuffing and things of that nature. And again, another piece of, of uh, information is that they are uh, rich in, in uh, protein. They've got about 44 uh, level on grams of protein per, per one, and they use them a lot in soups, and you can put, put them in with your stock if you're making stock. And, of course, everyone knows chopping them up and putting them in for your stuffing, different flavors of stuffing, is another way of using it. The, the heart uh, is another piece that you can use very clearly. It is higher in protein. It is uh, nutritious, highly nutritious. And I think for many, many years when chickens were first being used way back, that they realized that the internal parts of the chicken were very edible and that they were very nutritious. Again, used in illness sometimes, they would make broths that had fine slivers of, of, uh, of goose, uh, I mean not goose, I'm tr- sorry, uh, chicken livers and gizzards, and they enjoyed eating that. So it's, uh, it's an, another realm of, of if you haven't tried it, you need to try it to see what it's all about. There's nothing like southern fried chicken livers. That's another one. A lot of people really enjoy that one, and there are places that it sells strictly. You can go to the stores and, and, and buy the fried chicken uh, livers. And I have a friend who used to say, if you fry a rock and batter it, it it's good. But in this case, when you batter the uh, chicken livers with your favorite breading, add a little bit of cornmeal to it, fry it up, and I'm guaranteeing you'll have a good eat on that. That is what I have today. I'm uh, going to talk next uh, next week, which I'm excited about talking about, is brining and, and seasoning with your chickens and what to use. I have a maple brine that I'm going to introduce to you, which I think you really enjoy. And uh, along with that, talk about seasonings and what the actual seasonings do with the bird. So until then, I'll plan to see you next week at about the same time. Take care. Don't you know that in drama, singing Mary, tell Martha not to moan, we'll, we'll sing in Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you moan.
This is the Heritage Although Radio Katie Network. Doesn't seem to understand yeah, I'm that. not really to, I'm on, I'm not really on the radio, am I? Are um, these mics on? We are sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single source supplier of free range, all natural, grass fed, and grass finished beef. Since 1865, when Katie, you were a teenager, yep. the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result, were you on that? No, you weren't Lewis and Clark. That was just before your time when they first discovered California. The yeah, result I did is go for the gold rush, though. beef uh, with extraordinary flavor. Now, when you were a kid, they just called it flat out cow, and then beef came on a USDA term in the 1900s. Yeah. You were there for that. With I extraordinary was there when, flavor. When Upton Sinclair rode the jungle, man. And uh, <laughs> you were like, I took pictures for that. Uh, it's a strong flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. 
Um, for more information, this is very important, hearstranch.com. It's a fun site to go to. It's highest, highest, highest level of technology. So, As you might expect from the Hearst family. I love the first part of the show. I mean, to, what an honor to Barbara, Barbara Fairchild. Fairchild. Shout out to Barbara Fairchild and the fabulous Bon Appetit magazine. She's fun. She she's was easygoing. Terrific. Absolutely great guest. I hope she comes back she again She also and called again. for an air conditioner in studio. Yes. Uh-huh. She left I can't with think a why. <laughs> But now we have a very interesting second part of the show. That's right. And, um, well, do you want to, uh, I'll introduce my person and you introduce yours. And Fair we'll enough. Have a, Fair enough. So Sam is the manager of and, and longstanding kind of vision and, and energy behind Buy Right Market, which has got to go down as easily, easily one of the top 10 small supermarkets in the country. Easily, I mean, it has a a vaulted following. It's it's almost a, a tourist destination. I mean, people go out of their way to visit because, as he said earlier, they source from 350 active, probably about 600 annual, different streams of distribution that they deal with and navigate. That's hardcore. I am a big believer in it, and I think that bigger companies could do the same thing if they would empower their people the way Sam's empowered to, you know, launch movements in a Well, way. we're going to be we're going to get to the bottom of that Sam cuz that's that's a that's a really tall order and and my guest is Ruth van Wierbeek from Chile, but not originally, originally a Flemish Belgian uh, chef who is has spent many years in the United States and has been in Chile now for what about ten years? Twelve years. Twelve years, and um, among many other things, Ruth Ruth has really gotten the art and science of being a chef down. I think because for six months out of the year you run a guest house, mm-hmm. and the other six months of the year, or maybe more, you are the chef. Uh, spokesperson for Concha y Toro wines. That's right. So you get to create recipes around the wines, which are mm-hmm. fun and which you then get to, mm-hmm. you know, run around the United States and I'm sure South America, um, you know, turning people on to these great wines, which we're trying in studio right now. And, um, as well as having this fabulous guest house where you get to interact with people on a much more intimate and personal level and really enjoy the you know the beauty of your surroundings there. So I invite, I invented a perfect life for yeah, myself. You did. You did. I'm full of admiration because I'm working hard on doing the same thing for myself and I really I Just love believe in how it you and got go this. for it. Exactly, you know. Is that going to involve cutting radio out, Katie? No, it no? involves okay, making good. radio even more of a big part Take of Take radio life. with you wherever you want to be. That's the beautiful thing about radio. radio yeah, is we're going to be taking this show on the road in a few weeks. We're going to go up to Rhode Island, and uh, we'll have a great show from there. We're going to have like we're five have or a ten really guests. Great show, yeah. We're going to Jack broadcast Nat, from to my come. house, and uh, we're going to explore some of the agricultural, uh, progressive agricultural um, aspects of Rhode Island, which is a state that has suffered. Do they even have agriculture? Or just fishing? Actually, their fishing has been dying because oh, really? they overfished, and it's just coming back now with um, with a lot of uh, filter feeders. You know, there's a lot of oyster beds, a lot of mussling, a lot of clamming going on. People are starting to you know b- to build scallop beds and so forth. And we're going to be talking to my friend Perry Rosso, who runs the Matunic Oyster Bar and who is uh, one of five or six uh, fishermen who are doing that. Well, and let's uh, bring this uh, coastal because Ch- Chile is on the coast. All along the coast, well, correct? It's wedged between the coast and the Andes Mountains, yes. And San Francisco, of course, is right at the Pacific. So you share a common ocean. How big a part of uh, seafood is, you know, how big a part of your market and your, um, what do I call it? Uh, uh, 
hotel, a bed and breakfast. Uh, a hostel, a gastronomic hostel, hostel gastronomico. So talk about fish and this common body of water that both of you share. You know, the, lo- the local fish scene has um, unfortunately suffered, you know, much, much as it has in, in almost every part, of the, uh, every part of the world. You know, our, human, humans' desire for, for seafood has, has increased to the point where we're, we're not maintaining the ecosystems and not maintaining balance. We, you know, at, at, at Byright, we're constantly pushing ourselves to source only fish from, from uh, sustainable fisheries. We're working closely with an organization called Fishwise that that helps ed- educate us and advise us on fisheries to work with. Um, you know, one, one of my cool cool favorite fish that you know it's not even a new fish, but you know, I, I love the fact that we're able to sell them and people are digging them are sardines. You know, Monterey Bar Bay sardines, and it's mm-hmm. quite possibly one of the most sustainable fisheries, um, wild fisheries in existence currently, and and amazing, tasty, cheap, full of. Omega threes are super healthy, and and you know people, even though they're you know fishy, um, by many standards, people are digging them you know, because they're they're. Take they're, us through your fish seasons. Give us some of your headlining fish uh, per season. So we're in the spring, summer now. Yeah, you know, wild salmon season is just kicking. It's going to be the first. You know, we we just got our first uh, Columbia River Kings uh, two or three weeks ago. Okay. Um, first time that we're getting wild kings in three years you know that that fishery was shut down before yeah, two years you know the uh the commercial the commercial fishery was shut down because the populations were were in trouble so it's probably going to be a short season this year uh-huh. but at least we're getting a, a, a bit of fish and, and and it's you know it's pretty spectacular and where do we go um, in the fall and winter and spring um some summer you know uh local albacore um is, a, is another great great uh runner for us uh fall um uh, we get the tail end of like the, the sockeye, the Alaskan sockeyes, mm-hmm. um, cohos. Uh, Do winter. you guys consider Alaska local to you guys? How is that uh, viewed by San Francisco? Are you part of one terroir in a way when it comes to fish? <laughs> um, yeah, one ocean war. <laughs> yeah. Um, not really. Not really. Not really. You know, it's I mean, it's a, it's a it's a bit of a clip. Um, fish that has to be flown down. You okay. know, a lot of it's getting consolidated in Seattle, so we don't consider it too local. Um, Sam, let me ask you this. I mean, earlier when uh, Patrick was introducing you, um, I'm going to I'm going to segue off of the fish thing for just a second here. Sorry, I like that commonality of bringing our two guests yeah. together. We should let her answer too. But, but um, I, I just want to talk a little bit about the sourcing, and then we can bring Ruth in on how she sources for the guest house and also what you promote in the mm-hmm. in the wine tastings. But um, Sam, tell me. When you source from 350 or 400 different producers, how how do you manage the transportation? How do you manage that? Because that's expensive. It is expensive, and, and it's you know, are you able to aggregate, or do you you know, like how do you how do you make people you know bring their stuff to you, or do you send out a million trucks, or you know, how we, do you manage you know, this? we 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 don't send out any trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only we've we've got uh, one. You know, our produce buyer goes out and picks up produce a couple couple days a week. Uh-huh. But outside of that, everything comes to us. Um, so and smaller farmers are able to make that trip to you. Not not all of them. And this is yeah. like this is without question one of the biggest issues that that the um, you know the small artisan producer has to deal with. Right. And, and we have so much to learn from you know the WalMarts and the Whole Foods and the Safeways of the world because they've they've figured out how to put these little distribution centers strategically located and you know, throughout the country. So 
product gets consolidated and then right. gets distributed out. And their efficiencies, their efficiencies are extraordinary. No truck leaves and is ever empty. You know, if it's if it's dropping stuff off, it's picking it up after it drops it off. Exactly. And that's that's how they're actually able to make money. There's you know private equity firms that own like, these trucking companies, these logistic companies, because it's such a lucrative market. Um, and the, the little producers just got to deal with it, you know. So a farmer's got to take, you know, a full day out once a week if he's going to deliver yeah. once a week, or twice a week if he really wants to have fresh product in the restaurants and stores. And and they're not focusing and doing what they should be doing, which is like tending their land, tending their animals, That's you know, right. tending their people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the when we opened up the show today, we um, we talked about uh, a response that I wrote to um, an opinion page on the New York Times. And it was all about this very problem. And it does seem, I mean, we have people in here over and over again to talk about distribution, aggregate warehouses, and um, and processing facilities. Because if you're a small farmer and you're growing, you know, I don't know, five acres of lettuce, you don't have time to pick that lettuce over, clean it up, box it nicely, and put it into something, even if Cisco is picking it up for you. So that seems like that that piece of the puzzle, the distribution and the processing facilities, are the two links that are missing in regional productions. Mm-hmm. And Ruth, do you guys, how does, what happens in Chile with this? Like how, do you have the big companies like Cisco and U.S. Foods, or do you guys maintain a more, you know, a, re- a more regional, yes, regionalized networking? More regional. But we have both. And uh, out Who of are the your supermarkets, big guys? the big guys are out of Santiago, the big supermarkets, and uh, they get the idea from here. They do exactly the same. But fortunately for us, we still have in every little town, little little city, and uh, village, we have this, the, the 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 farmers market, uh-huh. and that the local people bringing their own stuff, and that's fabulous. And that's, I hope we never get, forget that. And that's that is a, a tradition and a cultural absolutely um, and feature we, yeah. of South American right. and I guess particularly right. Chilean right. cuisine that that has that probably right. will sustain it's itself, local, especially yes. through you know yes. given the sort of food revolution that's happening right. in the United States. I mean right. that does seem to be sort of right. filtering out. And do you guys have the same? Uh, do you have any things that are typical there that you cannot find here? Like, what are the delicacies of? Uh, oh, Ruth, you brought me a fruit, a jarred right, fruit, lucuma. Yeah, we have. I've some, never heard uh, of yeah, that. Lucuma. We have the What's shirimoya, the custard shirimoya apple. We have. Yeah, but it's not the same. Um, Chile has a very particular climate that makes it so good for wine uh, growing too. It's dry, it's Mediterranean. You have a long growing season of seven months, not the drop of rain. Going to make you jealous here. That's why I live there. Mm. I'm coming from Chile, <laughs> where it was the other way You're around. You're not making me jealous. Same climate we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in San Francisco, it's foggy, and I mean, yeah. we have the sun. Oh, it depends. And in the coastal Parts range, the it's the same. It's very yeah. similar, right? Um, but anyway, I lost my. Um, well, we were just talking about you know like the sourcing thing. So you guys have no, this we still built have in the small because Sam. Markets, yeah. What one thing I learned from a guy that I've interviewed on this station before, Steve Schimoller, who runs a restaurant in Cleveland and who has a very interesting little model going with his restaurant with restaurants in his area, um, where he teamed up with Cisco and regional regional ag, and he told me that farmers can spend up to this was during the gas crisis of you know a year and a half ago, but they were spending forty five cents on the dollar getting their product to market and that's and of course Cisco was spending huge money on fuel as well so they were very happy when Steve called them up and said you know let's team up and support the local ag blah 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 and I you know that model is working and he moved it into Columbus and I know he's hoping to expand it beyond but if your guys are all bringing their stuff into one place I mean how far can they be coming from how how, what's your sort of network of 
you know, mileage. Uh, we've, we've got we've got folks that are coming up to 250 miles to wow. get to us. You know, I mean, you know, there's you know some farmers down in the Central Valley, deep down in, in the Fresno area, who yeah. Um, but it's it's not like they're coming just to us. They're coming to hit the farmers markets. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the, and while while they're making that trip to the Bay Area to the city, they're 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 dropping stuff off at us, sure. or you know, we're going down to the ferry building or wherever the drop point is and picking it up. Um, you know, we've got ranchers. I mean, you know, meat. You know, your your world, the meat world, is one of the one of the most most challenging. Because there, you have to go beyond local often to regional or national yeah. because of the volume mm-hmm. progress. I mean, well, that. Demands. But then, but then you've got the slaughterhouses, which are so far and few, and ranchers have to schlep their cattle. Yeah. To, know, the to the slaughterhouse, which might be and 150 miles. And then it might have to go to another processing facility right. to be cut up. Right. So and, then, and then it's got to get to us. Yeah. Right. And there isn't like any sort of. There are very few consolidators of, of the meat, of the meat world. So the small yeah. rancher really is doing a lot of it himself. So does that make your stuff expensive? I mean, would you call yourself nationally speaking, you know, uh, an expensive place, you know, in the cosmic spectrum, or is it not? that expensive it, it it depends on how you want to view it you know i i, I think we're 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 we caught co- it costs more to buy food from us um some things are definitely more, more expensive other things are in line maybe less um we're trying hard to teach people to shop seasonally and when you shop mm-hmm. seasonally when you shop locally you can actually actually shop well inexpensively um but good food's expensive Good, well-produced food is expensive. If you're going to buy food from somebody who cares about the land and and who cares about the people who work for them, and cares about who they're selling it to, and cares about the welfare of our society, and and isn't just about producing it fast, big, cheap, mm-hmm. with empty calories, then then you're going to have to pay more. And and less you know, is we, better. I completely agree yeah, with him. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, our philosophy is one where if if we know that it's not going to sustain somebody or sustain people, then we're not going to we're not going to support it, mm-hmm. and and that's you know it's part of our biggest our bigger sustainability. How long has Byright been in, in business? Uh, Byright's been in business well under my ownership for twelve years, uh-huh. but it's been in business since nineteen forty. What been was it before that? Yeah, because I've seen that logo. It's B U Y with a no no B. It's a B I. It's kind of like that old school oh, you know deco 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 yeah, uh, yeah. deco spelling like you know. Rite Aid and Pay and Save. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. It's kind of a, you know, it was one of those names I wish I changed, you know? Yeah. But then, but, you know, then it it's would It's iconic in a way, though, right? It's a household name. Now, tell us a little bit, Ruth, about your production chain. Who do you source from? What are you serving? What are your guests demand? What do you demand? Well, I'm very, um, I went back to the source to, I I'm practically grow my own produce. We have a vegetable garden, organic vegetable garden, herbs, uh, and then my neighbors provide. Uh, I have chickens for the eggs. We have meat. Um, neighbors, when they slaughter an animal, they come to me and they say, do you want a piece? So I really go, I mean, it's, it's luxury. It's real luxury. I'm going back to my grandmother's time, and that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And wh- what part of Chile are you in? I'm about 200 kilometers south, in the middle of wine country, in Curico Valley and the Colchago Valley. Mm-hmm. So it's like the Barolo, the Piedmont of, Italy, of uh, Chile. Well, the d- great difference is, is that you, um, you know, that infrastructure never went away in Chile that we're right. that you're struggling right. to rebuild and that yeah. we talk yeah. about on the show all the time that just that didn't go away in mm-hmm. South America or right. really in Europe 
Um, so it's really the United States. We we let we let go of the reins of our food system back in the fifties when people embraced fast food and mm. pre-made foods. And I mean by that I mean TV dinners, uh, you know, frozen foods, Mister Bird's Eye, all of those great inventions uh, that were supposed to allow women more freedom to do whatever they wanted to do, etc. Are are the things that have really provided our undoing in terms of where we are now in two thousand ten? Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you know people are suddenly discovering right. that oh my God, you know right. I don't really want to eat this laundry list of chemicals right. in right. my chow. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, and in the meantime, we've lost that regional infrastructure. We've lost that impetus and that knowledge that I think is required to be able to really appreciate what you're doing, Sam, and what you're doing. But I mean, especially... It's so critical, you know, coming I mean, yeah. culturally... The United States is is, is is a young country you know, yeah. compared to countries like Chile and, and European nations and other nations in the world. And so there's this like deep, long-standing history of, of the valuing food, yeah. valuing people who make the food and produce the food. And because there's this value system in place, it's hard for it to, to go away because it's 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 innate. It's part part of part of the makeup of the people who live there. Absolutely. Is it threatened though? I mean, is there a threat, a fast food, a big supermarket threat, or not really in Chile? No, there is. We have There's it. There's a beast. It's, yes. No, no, no. We have it. And I mean, uh, while you were out of the studio, right. Ruth told us that, that uh, Chile is the world's highest consumer of Coca-Cola. Right. Yeah. So, and especially in the, in, the, in the lower classes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. also politically, uh, yeah, it's, it's a shame. But it's so who so comes to your place? Like, what uh, happens, and where do they stay, and, and what services well, do you provide? What do they see we when have they're a little, there? We have a little guest house. We made our own house. Mm-hmm. And and adobe people come and, and to cook with me in the kitchen it's a little the idea is of a chambre d'hôte chambre chambre like d'hôte in france when a, a, what's a, d'hôte mean d'hôte is a guest oh. where a chef is tired of having his three-star michelin uh, restaurant and wants to just cook for him for his own pleasure hmm. for eight ten people yeah. And you have these a nice one in French, number. right? Yeah. Like and that's a little bit the idea. That's a little bit the idea because I love cooking, but I don't want the whole stress running of a restaurant. I don't want that. I want. I want to have time to pick my own owners in my garden. And, and Alice just, Waters uh, is a friend of mine, and she says that when she gets a little older, that's what she wants: one table in her right. backyard. Right, sometimes just, it's mm-hmm. open, sometimes it's like not. Exactly. That's a little bit what it is, and we give classes. And then the rest of the year, I travel around and, and promote wines because they're great wines, by well, the way. Well, let's talk about the wines we have here because we, we're we sampling yes. a couple of wines. You have a Sauvignon Blanc of Casillero del Diablo. A twist-off. Like yeah. Oh, the, the white wines. That makes them fresher. Yes, it does. Thank you. Um, all right, so... It's a Sauvignon Blanc of Casillero del Diablo. Yeah, a it's a great aperitif wine, very crisp, and this is 100% Sauvignon Blanc. In, fr- in uh, Chile, we have all the French uh, grape varieties, as you can see. This is fruity. Very fruity, very aromatic. Now you uh, can nice see... Acidity. Yeah, li- nice acidity. Smooth, so it, yeah. It, it, it opens right up down. your appetite. It's a, it's a great aperitif. It's wonderful with ceviches, mm-hmm. with some seafood, mm. yeah, you know. What what cuisine do you base the menu of the night off of where the guests are from, or are you trying to give them authentic? I try to surprise them because so you're not Chilean. No, I'm Belgian. Belgian. So I have my French Belgian background, and that's how I apply it with all the local ingredients. By the way, it's it's, it's paradise for. Sh- I don't like chef for cook. Um, how ironic the beers. In Belgium, yeah. or, or, or I, I with know my beers pretty well too. She brings a twist know? off yeah, wine. Yeah. It's all crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not a pop top. You know, mm-hmm. the Austrians are popping pop tops. Oh, oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. It's cool as hell. <laughs> 
So um, so you surprise you to them. drink it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you buy from the you, you see you have ten people, so you go to the local farmers market and buy uh, like I a lamb. And stop. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I make uh, whatever. I, I try to find something that they don't know. You know, it's a little bit of a. Um, Magical as a little chemistry. I look at people or I talk to them and I sort of catch their vibe, you know, and yeah. try to do. Well, and also you, I know that you like to build a dish around the wine. That's what well, I do what with Conchaitoro. Yes. You for definitely me, build dishes the around way. the wine. Yes, so, yeah. yeah. But for the guest house, you do it sort of based more on what's available and what your people are. Right. Yeah. It sounds like the best of both worlds. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to do it both ways. Absolutely. So who is this producer? This is Conchaitoro. Conchaitoro is uh, Chile's leading winery. Mm-hmm. It's a very important winery. They make beautiful wines. Mm-hmm. And this is like an entry level. Yeah, it's, so not it's an reasonably expensive, priced, it's very totally drinkable. day to day. I'm convinced that with good food, you have to have a glass of wine. Oh, I mean, I, I can come up with a hundred reasons to convince you why you have to have wine with food. Don't turn away Belgian beer. Oh, no, like, no, no, no. A history there. No, too. no, no. All the foods, the good foods, I don't go with wine, have a Belgian beer. Uh. <laughs> Now, Nicely done, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> this it's is true. a Casillero del Diablo. Del Diablo. The cellar of the devil. There's a little story behind it. When the owner of the, the winery, Don Melchor, when he started eight, in the 1800s, he was discovering that his wine was disappearing in the cellar. He's a very wise man, and he knows his people. They're suspicious in Chile. Mm-hmm. So he, he spread the rumor that he had spotted the devil in his... Uh, uh, cellar oh, and it did man. work you know what we did in our house we have we have an internet connection with the phone and there's a little light blinking so the gardener is convinced that this is a system for uh, hidden cameras <laughs> so we left we let him believe it and we f- <laughs> yeah why not <laughs> and so far we're safe <laughs> yeah really that's smart that's very interesting well um, I know in, in Italy the, the no one goes around to the different wineries. They don't have the infrastructure for it. You just don't visit wines. They don't sell any wines from their actual winery. Whereas in Napa, that was the mm-hmm. cornerstone of the industry. Mm-hmm. How is Chile? Uh, Chile has very nice wine routes. And I think it's a great way to visit Chile. Because mm-hmm. it's not too far from Santiago. It's easy coming, flying in. It's a, So you Santiago fly into Euro- Santiago? Right, it's a European city. Very comfortable. And then yeah. you rent a car and go to wine country. I see. And how far is it from the city? Like to... Give someone who's never been uh, an idea to of Santa a week. Cruz, one hour and a half. So, and then you mm-hmm. have all kinds of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very comfortable. Yeah. Very f- it's interesting because it's a kind of a similar model right. in a way, right. isn't it? Yeah. Right. No, in Chile, it's a little more um, rustic. It's a little, it's just starting. So, a little bit more adventurous. It's just a beautiful country. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. You can go to Ruth's website actually mm-hmm. and take a look at, at either the it's what was what, what, what were we looking at the other night at kate's house that was so great that beautiful slideshow that was my that, that was your that hostel. was your little house yes, yeah. yeah yeah your host your hostel so should we try the second wine that's craving yeah, very, attention oh the second one is it's a now, this is i don't know much about wine but this is a red this is a red it's a carmenere of Marquez de Casaconcho, that's a great wine. The Carmenere is a great variety from Bordeaux. They got wiped out uh, after the Philoxera really? got French wine Yeah, because it's not, a, it's not a grape that you see on the French. No, and then uh, in French, in, in Bordeaux, they use it uh, for blend. And in mm-hmm. Chile, they it's one of the first times in the first country that really make uh, almost 100% of uh, Carmenere. You bring up a great point. It? Most of the vines, our listeners might not know this, that raise 
Italian and French wines are American vines. Except in Chile. That's why they were crafted. I mean, America saved uh, French winemaking. Plus, we gave Italy the tomato. Which came from North America. Right. How dare these people South look down America. at South, South America. America. Sorry, via North. <laughs> we <laughs> gave them polenta, too. We gave them polenta. Yeah, Why the are these corn, people so critical? Yeah, the corn. Tomatoes. And potato. Yeah. And potato. I mean, it saved you. Those from are all the South famines, American, yeah. Right? And that's also why this whole eat local right. thing, as important as it is, I mean, stuff has been moving all around the world forever. You know, hundreds ancient and Rome, yeah. you know, all the way. Absolutely. Well, if you so. think about Marco Polo and bringing this and the Spice Road and building the Spice Route from China through South Asia, Southeast Asia, right, into you know, and back into and the Mediterranean area. Yeah, it's incredible. Right. And well, I have a uh, question for Sam. I've been always asked, Diane asked this question. I've never asked it on a radio, <laughs> a radio. Product overload. You have an abundance of product. I hear about people in Minnesota that are like, oh, we can't buy this or that because we have a three-week growing season or whatever. Mm. You, on the other hand, have to stay true to vendors and, and yet product overload. Also, how do you compete with the 500 other sustainable places to get access, or is there overabundance of access? Anyway, you come from a bountiful place. Speak to the culture of a place that's known for growing season. I mean, we're we're blessed, you know. We we you know we can get fresh, you know, fresh uh, fresh food year round. There is there isn't a reliance on on beans and and and, and cellar cellared potatoes and vegetables, you know, during the winter. Um, though we also struggle on you know ethically currently with you know the fact that we have to buy um produce from you know southern california and and you know mexico during the off season we we try not to buy product from chile anymore um you know we you know about four or five years ago we stopped bringing in grapes in the off season first you know the first year people were you know convention about not having grapes and then second year one or two and then now it's just become kind of an accepted um, uh, fact at Byright that that we don't we don't do it. So do you have um, to show up at a farmers market at three a.m. so you get the first bit of best produce? And are is all the other guys from the other markets doing the same thing? It's a little bit better for us than that. You know, we show up at the market at six, um, <laughs> and and so much of of uh, you know what what we're able to do and the advantage that we have is the um, the relationships that we've developed over the years. We've we've um, you know, we pay a fair price. We pay on time. True. Very true. We're we're I think honest. People and have a know lot of that integrity. they're going to be able to sell a fair size chunk of their take or and whatever. Don't you know, their, their harvest for that particular week. Don't underestimate yeah. what Sam just said. They pay on time. Yeah, there's never an AR an accounts receivable call that has to be made to buy right. And I can speak to that from personal experience. Talk about a relief. Yeah. For a group or a farmer trying to do something good I mean it's very few and far between in the food world and it's great when it exists well I know it's a real problem like in restaurants for instance where mm. um, you know a restaurant will keep an account going with a farmer and they'll age the account and it's, it's a struggle it's, it's not fair. really tough so, yeah. you, know. you know but you have to you have to take a look at it from the restaurant's perspective you know, I they're, do. They're, 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 they're trying to manage <laughs> they're struggling their cash flow too, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean we've we've gone as far as you know paying in advance you know doing 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 you know knowing that you know knowing that you know a chicken rancher needs to buy you know needs to buy their pullets you know, and, or and, x number and, of pounds of grain or whatever yeah, it is they need right. yeah and they're throwing they're throwing a ton of money mm-hmm. out early in the year and yeah 
and they've got no cash flow. And so, they're tied but it to guarantees the, that we get the product. They're tied to the commodity price structures and yeah. commodity futures, and that's the thing that really. I mean, that's I do not understand exactly how the futures market works in the commodities. I mean, I don't understand any markets, but mm. this market is, I think, a particularly difficult one when you're dealing with the commodities like corn, wheat, barley. You know, like the big grain things, and and the impact that that has on, say, the dairy farmers. Well, how that's much the thing. I'm not of that world. Commodity market is a lame ass punk price that has <laughs> well, no is. place. They but don't a lot base, of it is subsidized. Buy right does right, not call a bunk. farmer. Yeah. But buy right does not call a farmer and be like, what's your price today? They're like, your ballpark going to be in this zone and you're going to need, you're going to be where you need to be. That commodity price is not set. I hate that that well, is our standard. But what I'm saying is that, like, for a chicken farmer, the price of corn, he could buy a load of corn at a certain price because he thinks, oh, my God, we're having a drought now. It might not grow and it might be more expensive. And then come to find out two months later that there's tons of rain it and matter. the price just plummeted. It shouldn't and matter. And he just got screwed. He I should mean, that's get what paid happened enough. a couple years ago. He shouldn't get paid the commodity. If he was paid a standard higher price, it wouldn't matter. He'd be like... Like I could have made more money, but I'm still making. I agree. Enough. I agree. But the point he, is, he is that I think him. the point is is that I think that the the futures market in commodity trading is something that people do not necessarily factor into why something costs what it costs. Well, break the system. It should stay the but, same. But but, but 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 you know you're you're talking about something that I, it's like so it's I think so, so critical. Institutionalized. And, well, it's institutionalized, it's so, but it's really one of the critical fundamental reasons why cheap food is cheap yeah, and good exactly. food isn't. If if we rely on corn and soy for our feed, right. which is subsidized and controlled by the government, and it's our traded food, on the futures right. market. Then right. you are then controlled our by the che- government. That, that's right. And, our, and, and then you're going to be able to buy food that's, you know, protein that's cheap. But right. if you're working with, with a farmer who refuses to feed corn and soy to their cattle because they know that it's gonna, they're going to have digestive issues and they're going to have right. to deal with, you know, medicating their, their, their um, herd, then you're already dealing with somebody who is making an investment, a greater investment in feed that is more sustainable Maybe not in how it was grown, but at least in how it's being digested, how it's, how it's impacting the animal, the animal yeah. and which is massive. And know? also the other thing is we're not that much more expensive. Whatever you want to call it, good, clean, and fair food, slow food, healthy food. You can go to buy right. I just want to say the val- the price of a meal at Applebee's yeah. or a value meal price at McDonald's is like $7.00. I bet you could go even to the Byright, you know, which is known, you know, as a as a higher end quality ingredient place. And I'll just eat say a meal it expensive. <laughs> for ten bucks. And I'm talking about a protein, I'm talking about a vegetable, I'm talking about a potato. So this whole insecurity thing is. You can feed four people with ten bucks if you're smart about how you shop. So done. We're not elitist. But We're that not implies that you know how to cook. Right. And that, but to that me but is the whole is- yeah, this is what this Patrick is the crux and I of it, right? We've relied, we've relied. I mean, time. it's you know, uh, this is why we're this is why we're rats in a system. Yeah, and we're trapped by the by the by the by, by, the, by, by time. mega agribusiness. By, well, not just agribusiness, mm-hmm. by by the system. I mean, the system agribusiness is one component of it. You know, that's part of a bigger machine. But but we you know, we we have to we have to value life. And we, we have we've forgotten how to value life and how to value family, how to value time around the table, yeah. and to value our relationships with the people who who produce the food that feed us. And and until Absolutely. we like revalue that and recondition society, and it's going to take right. time. 
You know, and we're going to hit crisis point before we can do it. Because yeah. Peter kind of broke the ice between us on this controversial main course and therefore Heritage Radio Network issue. <laughs> Once or twice a week, yes. Yeah. And, or, or four times a week. But well, either way, three on times a week. what you like to do, but some people truly hate to cook. Some people, you have to go out. Even if you eat at home six days a week, you eat it out once, but you shouldn't have to pay an arm and a leg. So we're I, running out of time. We only have like eight minutes left, so I want to go down around the table, including you, who hasn't said anything. I would like <laughs> to ask this message communication. We had Barbara Fairchild on, was our first guest. And She's we talked a, the about ultimate communicator with her magazine, website, mm-hmm. iPad mm-hmm. application. It would be nice if they took a more activist role. <laughs> How They're do working you, on it. No, yeah. they have, I have to say, for a mainstream magazine that applies to the biggest demographic in 1. all of the food magazines. A month. Yeah, that's not with inc- over that's 800 million, like, yeah, that's subscribers. You know, they have the, the what would you call it, the conscious cook, the mm-hmm. conscious cook column, which they instituted about two years ago, and then another health-wise column. I mean, they are They could do more, it. though. But they I'm could talking, do more, but they're doing great for what they are. True. Mm-hmm. Distribution of a message. How do you communicate to the outside world that they should come to Chile and, and come to your place? And drink Chilean wines. Drink, <laughs> drink Chilean wines. But I, I actually invite them to come over, and I take them by the hand and take them in the kitchen and show but them how to cook But how do you meet it. them? Somehow there's internet? a whole ne- internet. There's a whole network out there. I mean, what uh, mouth to word? Uh, how mouth? How do you say? Word of mouth. Mouth yeah. to word. That is it. I thought it was uh, word of mouth. Oh, no. <laughs> people, it goes around. We are small. People come to us. Well, people come. They have a great experience. They tell their right. friends. Exactly. So, do, so do, uh, is, really is there a bed and you. breakfast? international organization that for instance promotes your place are you a no, member of any group no it's just uh, friends that come family members has been growing 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 and the wineries are you the partnered? winery helps out yes okay yeah. well I'm, I'm assuming that you that you serve conchatoral wines at your at your Part guest house yeah, I like this the red, time. Yeah. No, this red is good. the red is smoking hot mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah really good Sam What's the question, Pat? The question I actually forgot. <laughs> how do we get closer to the people? No, um, how do you yeah, get the word get out the that they should come to Buy Right and not Whole Foods or Buy Right and not Key Foods? Um, I, I think by, mainly by doing the right thing. You know, I mean, we're 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 we take an active role in trying to touch every single pe- person how? who walks by touching them. I and we our advantage, you know, it's a it's a little store. Sam, but I don't want to hear that somebody's going to come up and fill me up at the produce aisle. <laughs> you probably will. I mean, you know, Katie goes to other places for that. I've yeah. been called the fondlers. <laughs> All the fondlers. Yeah, you have a whole phalanx of fondlers, huh? But, you know, we, we've got like anywhere between like 1,200 to 2,000 people that walk into that store every day. Because wow. it's right so, next to a beautiful park. Yeah. And, and we, we, we make a point of trying to, if we can't, you know, spiritually um, and physically connect with them, we're, 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 we're trying to passively connect with them by just showing how beautiful food can be and celebrating it and, and inspiring people to like want it to eat it to cook again you know do you do cu- culinary demonstrations in store we don't we don't do demonstrations in the store it's tiny so there's no room do you offer recipes we have a we we offer some recipes but we also have you know we started a little non-profit um called 18 reasons about two years ago and well, that's um, you i get those emails you do awesome yeah that's just, that that that's us and and you know we're, we're doing culinary classes we're doing tastings we're bringing farmers in ranchers in and letting our guests meet them you know and, and that's Yet, yet another way that we're bringing people tight, you know, tighter I've together. I've always wanted to do a guidebook. Sam, 
you know, for different places I visit. So San Francisco, go to Buy Right, and then eat whatever you buy there at the park, which is... Which Dolores Park. park. Dolores yeah. Park. That is, is the heart of the city. Heart what, what, of the yeah, city. Yeah, where are you? You're in the Mission District? Yeah, we're, right we're at 18th of Dolores. Right, by, right, like half a block from Dolores Park. It's so much fun. You will have a great afternoon. And then you can get some ice cream after you're done with the park. You don't you know, have to lunch. go to a museum or go see Alcatraz. That's how you get to know no. a city is by doing stuff like that. I agree. That's Absolutely. where you really see So the now we have our third mysterious guest... An unusually quiet guest. <laughs> yeah, Actually, very unusually quiet. Um, <laughs> tell us your name. My name is um, Kate Corcoran, and I work um, also with Conchitura Wines. And after listening to everybody here, I think one of the singular messages I'm hearing is price to quality ratio. So whether you're talking about Chilean wines, whether you're talking about you know buying premium foods, you're looking for a quality ratio for the price that you're paying. And oftentimes that means you're looking for a higher quality good. You know, you, you want value, but you, you should be prepared to pay more for what you're having. How much do these two wines cost uh, to the consumer if they were to go to a you wine You know, the Cassier del Diablo is a fantastic wine. It's, um, it's an entry-level wine, widely available, and that's probably going for anywhere between 9 and $11. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's really not. And uh, What about the red? And the, a very red nice the red is wine. actually a perennial Best Buy. It's right around the $20 mark, but it is a premium wine. Um, they worth are, the twenty bucks. I gotta say. I mean, it's no, more than that. You know, I don't. I don't spend a lot of money on wine, but I definitely mm-hmm. would see. I could see spending twenty bucks. And on I this. actually think people like people often say it costs more than that. And again, it's pr- quality to price ratio. Mm-hmm. You know, this is tasting as good as you might be paying thirty, forty dollars if it's a, if it's a wine from a, a pristine part of Europe that's got a lot more hair. You know, <laughs> years in it. But I just think that. People have to get used to paying for what they're having. And, and, and also, why should it be cheap is better? Just take a bit of pride in, in what you're eating, what you're putting into yourself and your friends and family. And $9 is cheap. That is the size of a That's large... That's a very reasonable... Cran Apple, or that might be a good company. Yeah, but I'm saying that yeah, a that's large right. juice. You could buy a big bujug of juice, and it'll cost you nine bucks. And and I think this yeah. is. I'm about right. to have a closing comment, and then we should go around for closing comments. Absolutely. We'll go this way, so it could end with you. Oh, but yeah. uh, con- concluding comment is that you know I think the sustainable movement is led by people with a democratic, you know, all boats rise with a high tide, you know, segment of the society. And yet at the same time, I think they go too far because they end up defining their ideas based off of the poorest segment of the society. And I also care about that people, but I don't want to put a black mark on the sustainable food movement for being elitist because it doesn't speak to that lowest 5% of the population because we've just proven and we prove every week in some way or other that going to buy right and and doing something smart or buying a $9 bottle of wine and not eating a, a three-gallon thing of Coke, which also adds value, slow food is not necessarily more expensive than fast food. It's about education. It's about taste. And I hold those people up to taste before I do to the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. Everyone can get into it if told in the right way. So that's my closing comment. And then last thing I'll say, main course kicks ass. We have awesome guests. We give them time to do it. Like we're ready for a national stage because, I mean, this show yet again is a powerful show and we have... Coming up, Joan D'Agasso, 
Marion Nessel. Next week, a trifecta of the best pastry chefs. In America. In America. Maybe the world. Michael Lysconis, Gina De Palma, and Ruth Levy Birnbaum will be our guests next week. Bring it on. And, you know, weeks after that, we have other great people in the pipeline. So yeah, these are is, the leaders of our field, yeah. for sure. So let's go to closing comments. Uh, a couple minutes, or, you know, one minute on uh, some lasting... Less is more. Legacy. Be selective. <laughs> pick something premium. It doesn't have to cost the world. Enjoy what you have. It doesn't have to be all about quantity. Do you have a website? ConchitoroUSA.com. How do you spell that? C O N. Sorry. C O N C H A Y T O R O U S A dot com. Nice, Sam. Nice, Sam. Like that. I Very hope everyone smooth. saw that on yeah, there. Yeah, it's really too bad you couldn't. That's smooth. Sam, first of all, what's your last name, darling? Moganum. Where's that from? I know you said that uh, before. Palestinian. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Very nice. Um, and what's your website, Sam? Byrightmarket.com. Okay, and it's B-I-R-I-T-E-M-A-R-K-E-T.com. Closing comment. Share, share, sit with your family and share time at the table more often. I think that's probably one of the most important things that we can, we can do as a society. We spend too much time eating food away from the table. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I'm, I'm just in, in, in awe of how fast and how rapidly the farmer's markets have grown. Mm-hmm. If you haven't been to a farm, farmer's market, get your butt over there. Meet a farmer. Talk to a farmer and understand how hard they work. Yeah. Know where your food comes from. You know, there's nothing nothing will do more to change how you buy food than knowing where it comes from. Heritage Foods' new mantra is if you want to support a small family farmer, buy, buy from, from him. Heritage yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, no, just buy from him. Yeah. You have to buy it. Uh, lip service doesn't mean anything. Yeah, Ruth? we just wrote um, I'm sorry. No, you I was go. just gonna say, you know, we just we, you know, we we write a newsletter every other month and, and, and you know, the title of one of our newsletters uh, articles was uh, Strawberry Fields Forever because the strawberry season in California just started and we work with an amazing farm called Blue Moon mm-hmm. um, Organics in Santa Cruz and you know, we ended it with saying, you know, strawberry fields won't be there forever unless you're buying from them. You know, you got to you got to support them. Otherwise, it ain't going to happen. Ruth, closing comments for the main course, uh, Mm -hmm. May 1st. Well, I'd like to invite everyone to come over and uh, visit us and experience it really at the core. Because where I live, uh, you will experience farm, uh, farm country, Chilean countryside and food. Like it was here 200 years ago. And how do they contact you for more information? To, the one, to my website. Uh, they can go to uh, Mapuyampai. M- oh, my God. That's harder than your last name. It's a language. But maybe if they contact the radio. How do you spell it? Say it slowly. M-A-P-U-Y-A-M-P-A-Y dot C-L. Thank Chile. God, Heritage Foods <laughs> Network is also an archive, so you can yes. Google, yes. you can search Chile and find mm-hmm. the name and site yes. and just link to and it. And tag on that, yeah. Ari Katie synthesize everything. We we this had has been an amazing show. Oh, but I mean, all really. the shows are this good now. I have one minute. Jack is telling me, and how do I put this all into one minute? Well, we first started. Of all, we started with Barbara Fairchild from Bon Appetit magazine, who has been you know Bon Appetit is one of the oldest. Uh, magazines in the business of talking about food and encouraging people to cook and they've been there through thin and thick I have to say I mean you know there's been a long time when we we kind of just lost our control of our food system and it was all about reading the recipes and not
not making them. And now we have people like Sam, people like Ruth, you know, people like the many guests that we have on this program who are all in the business of making it happen in a better way that is not only better for you, it's better for our country, it's better for our land, it's better for, as an example, you know, for the rest of the developing world, which is moving fast into what we are trying to move yes. away from now. And I think that that's, you know, th- there's there's a bit of a pivot there that's that we really need to show the leadership on the food front as well as the leadership that our current administration is trying to show in terms of nuclear energy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nuclear warfare, uh, environmental, you know, guidelines, etc. It's all, you know, we are an interconnected and global world now. It's there's no, you know, as, unless you live up in the mountains of Chile, you know, there's that there's no escaping from, what's happening everywhere else. So that went from Walt Whitman to Paul Krugman. You know, that was a <laughs> whole spectrum right there. Katie is well, awesome. That's me. I'm, I do my reading. So um, there's the right side of history and the wrong side of history. Yeah, we want to be on the right side. Information's out there. You have to be on the right side. It's your moral obligation you, to Patrick. whoever it's your nice powers are. It's right. Yeah. If, you, if you care, you, if you care, you got to do something about it. Right. Yeah, you can't so. stand by. Yeah. Um, that's, so yeah. do the right thing. Support your local ag. Enjoy right. your life and enjoy food. I want to say a little thanks to our engineer today, Nat Weiner, otherwise known as Rectech. Rectech. And Jack Inslee, our producer. Thanks very much to our guests, Sam, Ruth, Barbara, Patrick. And awesome. to this and delicious to wine. Brought it to us. All right. So the we'll wine? see you next week with. Conchitoro. Uh, Conchitoro. And next week we have. The trifecta of pastry chefs. Number one pastry show of the year yeah. on the radio waves. I know it already. It oh, can't yeah. not be. It's going to rock. Okay. <laughs>